one of the big one of my big passions um, around this body of work is I actually want men to be better husbands and better partners for women. Um, I don't want them to be pieces of shit. Um, I don't want them to let the team down. Um, I actually want them to embrace their masculinity and be the best version of themselves um, so they can have happy and successful relationships. And so their partners, um, you know, in a heterosexual relationship, their, their partners, their women, um, can flourish and be the best version of themselves as well and embrace all of the amazing opportunities that this new age society is giving them. Well, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Couple of Lattes. As always, I'm your host, Jacques Massey. And let me take a moment to thank each and every one of you for tuning into Couple of Lattes. It is insane to see how much growth uh, we are getting on the show. Uh, it's going exponential, parabolic, any of those other words that describe the listenership and the downloads going to the moon. I uh, cannot believe last month's statistics, so thank you guys, thank you. It's really awesome to see that this podcast is starting to reach more people in different places, and my hope is that uh, these conversations that I have with guests or these talks that I have uh, with uh, just myself on the show are empowering you guys to empower yourselves to take action in your lives on the areas that you want to improve and to be grateful for the areas that you're just plain grateful to be having in your life. <laughs> so with that in mind, I want to ask you guys a quick favor before I dive into this incredible long form podcast with my friend Jack Roberts. If you can take five minutes, if you're using Apple podcasts, not even like a minute to leave a five star rating if you love the podcast, of course, and please leave a review. The reviews and the ratings help the podcast and the algorithm reach more people. And the more people that we can reach, I think it's a good goal and a good ambition. And also, it's great to see that more people are going to be benefiting from the chats we have and hopefully empowering themselves just like you guys are. So with that in mind, thank you guys so much for joining me on another podcast. Uh, today's chat with Jack Roberts is all around identity and masculinity. It's a long chat, but a really good chat, loaded with, packed with incredible nuggets of wisdom. Jack is a very intelligent human being, and although at points uh, we don't agree, uh, it's great to see that in the conversation, there's always that idea to seek to understand one another. And I think we came to some great conclusions on some challenging topics, especially around masculinity. Um, it's a sensitive topic to talk about nowadays, uh, but I think we did a pretty good job on it. But you guys can let us know as well. You can send me a DM uh, either on Couple of Lattes, it's at Couple of Lattes, or on at Massey Bros, M-A-S-S-I-E underscore bros. But for now, let's dive straight into today's podcast with Jack Roberts. I guess at the end of the day, though, you, you learn from these mistakes, right? So you, you could look at them as mistakes, yeah. but really they're just opportunities, bro. And like, if I'm totally honest with you, I'm super impressed with where you've got yourself to at such an early stage in life financially. It's inspiring to me. So, man, keep making mistakes because they're getting you somewhere. <laughs> yeah, thanks, bro. Um, it's definitely like those mistakes have informed my new direction as far as cash flow properties and, and things like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's the next wave, which also coincides with being able to develop some of that stuff myself. So, um, which it's, to be honest, it's not the only way to do it, but it is the best way to do it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you just, the economies of scale play out so much better when you're building it yourself. But mm. you can go to Carlton and buy something that's in a net rental growth area um, 
and do really well. Buy one bedroom apartment. You got a uni student in it. You pay three hundred and fifty grand for one bedroom in Carlton, and they'll pay you four hundred and fifty bucks a week because rents around the unis and stuff are really expensive. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's opportunities out like that that I could just recommend to people overnight, but mm. that will unfold um, as we move down a greater media strategy as well, and people start to see um, see what we're doing, and then when they start asking the questions. Um, how do we do that or how do we get into cash flow properties, then maybe I'll look at addressing it a little bit more widely because I don't think it's, it's definitely not widely spoken enough. There's yeah. a, a very big niche of YouTube that is, but like you have to be in that mindset of like self-improvement, financial improvement and all of that to even get to the point where you find out about, oh, what's a cash flow property? Like, why do I buy that? Yeah. Why are my parents negatively geared? Why don't I need to be negatively geared? So, mm. um, you know, there's there's a lot of questions to be answered, but it's sort of one of those things. That it's probably not going to be a core, um, a core strategy for my brand until much later, just because it's not the most interesting, the most interesting stuff to talk about. Um, particularly when people are not like not really interested in um, not really interested in hearing about that stuff all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, fascinating. I reckon I could pick your brain on this for like a series of podcasts, to be honest. But I guess you and I are here to, today. To What's that? Sorry? Happy to do it with you, bro. Yeah, man. But uh, I guess today we're talking about something completely different. Um, so let's, I guess, put real estate aside for a moment and cash flow. And we can talk about that many more times in the future. But today you and I have kind of agreed to talk about identity and masculinity. And let me let me make an assumption straight off the bat that this is something that's pretty important to you. I think that it has grown in its importance over the last uh, two years, definitely. Yep, that is Jack Roberts, and he also hosts his very own podcast, or should I say podcasts. He has video by Jack Roberts and audio by Jack Roberts, but you can find him on Instagram and all the links to his podcasts on at jackroberts8 or you can just look in the comments below this episode and you'll find all the details you need to stay in touch with Jack and follow his incredible journey and his incredible podcast. But it's gone from something that was absolutely not anywhere. Um, it was nowhere in the picture um, five years ago. It was something that I didn't think about at all. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's probably one of the things that I think about and I research the most. Cool. Okay. Well, having that in mind that it is something that's of importance to you now and man you were 25 years ago I'm, I'm sure there was plenty more things on your mind when you're a 20 year old man right but now it's of importance to you so what i want to ask you is why is it so important to you and if you can relate it back to your own personal stories so your own I don't know whether you've had uh, battles with finding your own identity or whether you've had troubles identifying yourself from a more masculine point of view. But if you can interweave those kind of personal stories into your why, I'd love to hear it. We are in a crisis of masculinity. Young men in increasing rates are falling victim to... Um, I guess the views of the media and the mental health crisis that's going on. Um, I've been lucky to in, to avoid, um, I would say most of, if not all of, um, the mental health uh, side of things as I as I work through my journey. Um, I also believe there's good reason um, for me being able to avoid those things, um, which I might touch on later with you. Mm -hmm. um, 
but basically one of the biggest challenges and I think you can really um, you can really divide your childhood or your upbringing into into three stages in my mind. Um, the first stage obviously um, you're born. Um, I, I do believe that we are we're sort of born stupid so we get shaped very much by the world and um, by the inputs that are put into us by our parents. Um, you can go and look at like uh, John Bowlby's work on attachment theory. I think the first time he published that was in 1976 and now attachment theory is one of the leading uh, leading fields of research in psychology. Um, and that basically talks about the, the formation of attachment with primary caregivers between the ages of zero and four and then how that plays out in every single relationship you experience for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, side note, while we're there, um, you can change your attachment style. Um but it is something that you have to work on and something that's difficult. Um, what do you mean? What do you mean by attachment? Like that you pick up along the way. What, what do you mean so, by what do you mean by attachment? And in what context are we talking about attachment here? Okay, so um, John Bowlby was a um, a UK uh, psychologist um, and researcher, um, and basically he did a study where he took uh, infants, ch- children between the ages of zero and four, um, and then looked at their interactions between them and their parents. I believe that the first experiment was basically they would put the, the infant in a room and then they would set up all the cameras and watch the eyes and the body language and uh, listen to the tones of the tones of the crying and the sounds that uh, that the infant made when the parent would walk away or leave the room or do different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was basically like when the baby cried, what did the parent do? And then what was the response from the child? And then they mapped this out over, I can't tell you how I, go and read the study if you want to know the exact dates, but they basically map this out over time um, and they look at how the parents would normally react to the child when it cries or when it asks for attention um, and um, and how the child then begins to form relationships. Mm-hmm. Okay. And those relationships can be anything from romantic um, through to friendships, uh, business partnerships, everything. Um, and basically what we see is there's three key attachment styles that he identified in, in 76. Um, secure attachment, um, which makes up about 60% of the population. Um, then there's basically um, insecure attachment um, and then there's avoidant attachment. Um, there's now since then there's been a lot more work and some of them have been relabeled um, there's a lot of stuff out there you can read through if you just google attachment theory and you go through um, there's like anxious, anxious avoidant um, avoidant dismissive there's all these different little subgroups um, but basically they ro- revolve around how we interact um, with our firstly our primary caregiver and then we uh, replicate that relationship as we move forward in life Um, So if you're lucky enough to um, get a secure attachment style, um, you basically, you proceed through life and everything pretty much goes well for you. Um, You have interactions, mainly the place where it's going to manifest for the first time for young men is is serious romantic relationships. So they're going to see how they interact. Um, If you are secure, um, obviously you're not worried about it basically comes down to a lot of things like um, fear of someone leaving or, um, you know, being abandoned. So fear of abandonment. So okay, if you're yeah. a baby and your parents just let you cry and cry and cry and cry and cry yourself to sleep, um, that can lead to something like, a, you know, a um, an anxious attachment or an avoidant attachment. Um, 
Whereas if you were, look, say, looked after, but some kids <laughs> were looked after, um, but just not in the way that their undeveloped brain needed. So it's why, um, you know how they wrap the babies um, when they come out of the womb and in the hospital, they wrap the baby up really tight. That's to simulate being held. Yeah, um, right. All of these things are really, really important for the development of, of the neurons in your brain. Um, and basically that starts to feed into the attachment theory. So those zero to four years are really formative in what kind of attachment you receive is what you'll look for in the future. Um, basically it contributes to that uh, funny statistic that a lot of guys end up marrying their mum, not literally, <laughs> but they end up look, basically what they're looking for is the attachment pattern that they had as a child. Yeah, right. um, and they're trying to basically repeat that and bring that into the world because it's the only thing they know. Mm-hmm. Um, so if their parent um, is, you know, quite dismissive and leaves them by themselves all the time um, and th- the child can sometimes almost feel like um, it's on an island, like it's them versus the world. So big rock cliffs, um, big raging seas down there and the only way to keep the world at bay is to be insular and to be within themselves. That then develops like that sort of avoidant kind of, um, attachment. So one of the things they might experience in a, uh, in an adult relationship is one partner that's maybe a little bit more secure or even more anxious in their attachment style. Um, anxious and insecure are sort of synonyms in this, in this conversation. Mm. Um, they're really trying to attach and connect with that person and pull them close, um, and share some really close moments. Um, and someone that's avoidant, um, they haven't experienced that before often or they have experienced it but because they've never remedied their attachment style they're very good at pushing it away mm. and they're like hang on i trust me and me only i i like you and i enjoy your company but i need you to stay over there right now mm. um and you basically you go through periods as both sides of the scale so as an anxious person um and as an avoidant person where you can connect if you're in a relationship together um it's not saying there's no connection at all but one of the really common things is if you are an anxious, if you're someone with anxious attachment and you go and you enter a relationship with someone that has avoidant attachment, um, you might have a fight, for example, and one of the common things that someone that's anxious needs reinforcement with is they need to be told that they're loved and they're accepted and they're seen for who they are um, and that the love that they feel is real. Um, you know, they don't want to be... The biggest fear for an anxious person is abandonment. They don't want to be left alone. Mm. Um, this is typically because... When they've been a child, their parents left them alone when they're crying or when they needed attachment. Um, and when they needed security, they've been left alone. So that's what they crave into the future. Mm. Um, and typically the way of getting that as a child is you just cry and cry and cry and cry. Um, so a lot of anxious people with anxious attachment will basically, um, haggle their partner. So what's wrong? Um, you know, what's going on? Let me help you. Um, you know, let's just hug it out. Like they'll really want to attach and really hold the other person tight. And if the other person's avoidant, that's the last thing they want. They want to be on their island. They want to be by themselves, right? So you're actually, you build a bigger divide in the relationship um, by trying to remedy your own selfish needs. So, and it's both ways because the person that's, the person that's pushing the other person away, that's not right. That's not secure attachment, Mm. right? But that's the only attachment they know and vice versa. Then the other person's chasing harder and they're trying to pull them in and then they're like, oh, come here, come here, I need. And it's not for the other person because if you actually learn to be secure, right, you look at the other person when they say, I need space, right, even if you're 
the whole, like I know for me, the whole of my biology looks at that situation and I just have red flags. So my amygdala, the fight or flight response part of my brain just goes haywire, right? So we're at DEFCON 5. We think there's a nuclear <laughs> missile strike, right? Cortisol, adrenaline, all of these things, right? I think that I'm about to lose the relationship or I'm going to have to fight to save the relationship when really all the person wants is 10 minutes of space. Yeah, they just want right. to cool down. They just want to be with themselves. Um, and one of the powerful things that happens by looking into this research is you can actually, um, you can start to change your style. Mm. Um, and, it, and it's like anything, you start to overcome your amygdala. So when I'm in a situation now, oh, you might've picked up on, I have a, um, I was born into or, or inherited um, a anxious attachment style. That was gonna be um, my next so question actually, but you've answered y- it. Yeah. Um, so I, um, and look, I've had, you know, I've had a couple of partners and I won't go through, you know, their specific attachment styles, um, because it's probably something personal and, and to discuss with, with your own partners for the people listening. Mm. Um, but you know, I've had people that are secure. I've had people that are anxious. I've had people that are avoidant and I've seen all these things play out. And when I read this research, it just clicked and I was like, ah, They didn't actually want me to chase them harder. They just wanted 10 minutes of space, right? And now as soon as you start doing that with people, it's instantly amount of change and they actually appreciate you more. Now, it's difficult because you're fighting an internal battle, right? So inside, your whole biological threat system is DEFCON 5, Mm. right? The first time that you get in an argument with someone you care about and if they've got an avoidant attachment style and they say, listen, I just need some space, Right? The first time you look them in the eye and you say, no worries, I'll be here when you're ready to talk about it, right? That is not what your brain's telling you. Your brain's, <laughs> your brain's telling you, don't out. let them go. They're going to leave you. This is panic stations. Yeah. <laughs> this is really, really bad. <laughs> you're making a mistake, right? And you just have to, I guess you have to trust in the science, but also trust in your judgment mm. um, that that's the right thing. And what I've learned is that you can overcome you can basically overcome that part of your brain um, and that part of your amygdala and, and start moving yourself towards secure attachment. Mm. Um, I'm not an expert by any means, um, but I believe there's seven tenets of secure attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you engage, there's specific um, therapists that now work uh, specifically with attachment theory. Um, and therapist is probably a strong word. They're probably more coaches than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more like getting a life coach because um, you can go through life with any of these attachment styles and they don't really, um, you cannot really have an issue, right? If you have anxious attachment and you marry someone with anxious attachment, cool, right? Each time you have a fight, you're going to come together closer than ever, mm. right? If you're avoidant and you marry someone that's avoidant, um, great. Um, unfortunately, you don't always, um, I guess you don't always get to pick and choose your partner's attachment style. So you might really like someone and have a great connection with someone, but you've got different attachment styles. Okay, that's now something we need to remedy. Mm. Um, so there is people that go through life and they can have an attachment style play out and they never never remedy it. Um, there's also a lot of people that go and um, that go and adapt a, a secure attachment style and it changes their life. Um, one person that's really interesting, a fellow Australian that's very interesting, on the Tim Ferriss show, I think last week or, or a week ago, Sia, um, the singer and songwriter, mm-hmm. um, actually uh, did a, it's about an hour and a half episode with Tim and they talk about attachment style in depth. Yeah, right. Um, and she also, um, she also discusses how attachment style um, led her to a lot of her addictions and a lot of the bad things that have happened 
to her and her life and now she's remedying them. And I think she was saying that she's achieved in 12 months um, five of the seven tenets of secure attachment. Let's um, um, let's let's dive into those seven tenets, uh, Jack, because I kind of... I don't know. You don't? Okay. <laughs> I okay, don't know what they fine. are. Yes, so that's okay. So all we know is there's seven tenants. So maybe that's, uh, that's something we can in- include in the tools and tips near the end of this podcast. Um, but I guess what I was going to say, if you could put a, I can send you some links and you can drop them in the show notes. Perfect. Um, and pe- people can do a little bit more reading. Yeah. Um, it's something that I'm across a lot of the really early research. Mm-hmm. Um, so John Bowlby being the first guy. So I've read a lot of his stuff. I've read some of the mid nineties and a little bit of the stuff today. Um, but this has exploded in the last, probably in the last three years. Mm-hmm. So there's more body of work out there than I've been able to consume. Um, and some of these things are the new tests um, and the new tenants of attachment style and, and some of the things that they've built in there. So um, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I will get that information. So people that have listened and this might have triggered something for them, mm-hmm. um, they can duck into the show notes um, and read up on it in detail. That's fantastic, bro. Thank you for that. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, I can... But I think the initial question was about um, masculinity. And the crisis of masculinity well, more, and finding identity. More so, I wanted to know why it's so important to you. And I, I can kind of gather now in terms of this, it sounds like we've been talking about identity in particular so far. And it sounds to you like uh, understanding um, your identity and discovering that you were a, an anxious type in relation to this attachment theory uh, was important to you because it was affecting your relationships or you felt as though your relationships weren't working so well because you didn't understand your identity? Is that a correct assumption? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the biggest thing here, um, and one of the things that I also host a podcast, one of the things I see across my podcast is a lot of older guests talking about how you need to know yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is something that I can 100% get behind. So one of the key things for me and it's the way my brain works. It's not the same for everyone. Um, but I need to know why. So if something's happening and something's negatively affecting my life, I need to know why that's happening. Mm. Um, so for me, a lot of, I guess, um, how would I put this? One thing that helped me to avoid a lot of the suffering um, that is life um, was learning more about me, my biological systems, what can change, what can't change, what I can do better. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really basically was part of getting to know me. So uh, you can't change something you don't know about yourself. So I believe that with, you know, humans, we are, we're inherently flawed. You know, you're born stupid and you basically pick up the things that are around you. Um, And, you know, your parents, as much as they try their absolute hardest, um, are not always the best parents. Um, Firstly, there's no book on parenting and it's a bloody hard job. (laughs) But it's also our responsibility to parent ourselves um, and to jump on board at the point that we have. Once we can look at our life and we go, hey, that happened and that really hurt and I don't want to go through that again. How can I fix it? Mm. Um, Or, hey, why am I having the same problem at every single job I have? Is it me or is it the world? Mm. Um, and I guess that brings me back to the, the little hypothesis that I was putting together a little bit earlier before we delved off into attachment theory. Um, I think there's sort of three stages that you work through. Um, and the first one is that real innocence as a child and your, and your decisions are really being informed by the world. Um, so 
basically you pretty much um, you have a very optimistic view of the world, right? And you walk around thinking that everything's good um, and that nothing bad's going to happen, um, which is, you know, you're, you're protected by your parents. Um, you don't really watch the news. Um, you go off to kindergarten and, and primary school and things like that. And things are pretty good. Mm. Um, and then somewhere in there for the first time, um, you begin to realize the world's not as what you think it was. So I think that most people probably at that point have a bit of an understanding, you know, let's say you're, you're somewhere around 10, 11, 12, maybe. So this is there. stage two? Um, you think? Sorry? Is this moving into stage two? You mentioned it being three stages. Yeah, so yeah. moving into stage two. Um, somewhere around 10, 11, 12, you think that most of the people in the world are probably good by nature um, and the bad people are the outliers. Um, so you've never really experienced... Um, evil you've never really experienced someone um that has come into your life to do harm because kids you know you might have been pushed off the playground you might have been bullied a little bit but you typically understand that it's part of gameplay and part of rough and tumble play which are important parts of human development um so you've sort of avoided most of the malevolence in the world up until that point mm-hmm. um <clears throat> typically then i think somewhere between 12 and 15 um kids start to experience um, some true malevolence. So whether that's um, bullying at school, um, they might see, you know, and this can start earlier for people as well. It's not a it's not a, a strict rule, but there could be domestic violence at home. There could be violence somewhere else in a, in a, you know, in a different scenario. Um, there could be divorce. There could be death. There could be so many things that happen. Um, and it basically, all of a sudden, your whole world shattered, right? Because you go from thinking... Um, you know, the tooth fairy exists, Santa Claus comes, grandma and grandpa are never going to die, my parents love each other, um, and people don't do things to other people um, unless they sort of deserve them, like there's justice and, and everything sort of works out and is righteous in the world. Um, Apologies to anyone listening who still believes in Santa Claus, uh, if we burst your yeah. <laughs> Um So basically that shattered the first time you run into malevolence. Mm. Um, and I think malevolence is... is best described as someone that does something deliberately evil to you for the sake of doing it. Mm. Um, so it's not you you punched me so I'm going to push you over, right, which is a direct response that you might see in the playground. Um, it's like someone goes out of their way that doesn't know you to do something that's deliberately going to hurt you just for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Um, and there is also something innately human in that. Um I think, and not to go off on too much of a, tan- uh, a tangent, but um, to hypothesize, I guess, a little bit part of that Adam and Eve awakening in the Garden of Eden and realizing they're naked and vulnerable um, is also realizing the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities. And that's something that we do extraordinarily well as humans. We know how to hurt another human because we know our own vulnerabilities. Mm. We know the things that get under our skin, the things that really hurt us. Mm. Um, and that's how we have this huge potential for malevolent evil um, that other animals don't have. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of other animals are driven by biological, chemical processes, um, things around, you know, territory, um, land holdings, social dominance, hierarchies, and things like that. Whereas humans are one of the only species that just have this capability to be truly evil for absolutely no gain. Mm. Um, so we experience that somewhere in the, in the mix there. Some kids it's going to happen earlier, some it's going to happen later. Obviously, the ones that are sheltered more from the world by their parents and, and protected, um, you know, 
we typically call those people a little bit naive. Um, but how many people that are naive at 18 um, end up with some kind of drug or alcohol problem at 25? A lot of them, because when they realise that the world's not what they thought it was, um, it, this is a foundational shifting moment. When it happens younger, I think we do a better job of remedying it. But the remedy often for a lot of young men, um, particularly in our society now, because there is a lack of strong male role models, um, is that we move towards cynicism and nihilism. So it's like, what's the point? The whole place is fucked. Um, it, you're never going to change it. The system is the system. Um, you know, this person's a fucking idiot. That person's a loser. Um, there's also a lot of ego development in this stage as well. I think there becomes a lot of us against the world um, kind of thing that happens for young males. Um, and that really epitomizes the second stage. So we can often get a little bit, you know, cynical and nihilistic towards the world. And that manifests itself um, in, I would say, more destructive behaviors. Mm. Um, so we start looking at the world around us and trying to impose our will on it. And often, um, often for a lot of guys that is in its in its own malevolent way. Like we're just like the world is evil, so therefore we're going to embrace that darkness. We're going to let it come out. Now I think that that most commonly manifests itself in guys at the moment um, through probably the culture of drugs and alcohol, mm. um, and the that's that's a self destructive thing, right? So the idea is you use those substances for escapism um, because in Australia if you look at the statistics, there's not a lot of people that are just enjoying one glass of wine, right? We're sort of a bit of a binge drinking culture um, and that starts at a young age. That's a self-destructive thing, right? That's escapism. Mm. That is the world is fucked and it's all painful and I'm going to take these five hours with my mates to withdraw myself completely from that and cushion myself in this world of drugs and alcohol. And it's self-destructive. It's not productive. Um, you don't push yourself further in life. Um, you know, there's probably someone out there that's going to try and place devil's advocate and say, oh, I've met a lot of good people and built a lot of good networks um, when I was out on the piss. I'm like, absolutely, I'm sure you have, but you should try doing it sober. You'll 10x the networks you have. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, so that's like a common manif manifestation of that period, heavy use of drugs and alcohol. Um, I would say that you also have the rise of certain addictions, so um, there's definitely like sex addictions in society that we see play out. Um, you know, guys like Charlie Sheen are a good example of that where you've got drugs, alcohol and sex. Um, and tiger that blood. Really got... Sorry? And tiger blood, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that I think also rolls off um, pornography as well. So I had, no, I had a serious had addiction this... to pornography, actually. I don't know if you've... Uh... Mm. So I did a podcast on it a while ago. I actually wrote a wrote a blog. It it ended up getting quite a lot of traction because I, because I think a lot of men related. But I had a serious addiction to pornography. It was one of the big, big catalysts to a, a relationship of mine collapsing. Um, but that's I guess a little tangent off the topic. I do have a question quickly before you continue though. Why do you think? Um, because in my opinion, and this is purely opinion based, I don't know a hundred percent from the research. Um, why do you think it is that men are so so much more prone to falling into this trap of darkness and becoming, um, I guess, I guess just accepting monsters. that the world world is evil and becoming, yeah, monsters in a sense at, at this kind of stage two, what you're coining stage two. Why do you think that is? I believe it's because of lack of uh, appropriate male role models in the modern society. Okay. Uh, expand on that so, one. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, one of the things that uh, the, okay, this is, we have to balance a very fine line here, Jacques. Um, the, one of the great things that the egalitarian movement has given us um, is more freedoms for young women uh, and well, women of all ages to express themselves. Um, and it's an absolutely, um, you know, equality of opportunity is an absolutely desirable outcome. And it's something that we should seek, um, you know, we should seek out and continue to pursue within society. Mm -hmm. um, in seeking that goal for one half of our society, which is really important because, um, you know, we were burning them for being witches, right? It wasn't good. That was really shit. Um, so it was absolutely needed. And I'm not pointing, I guess I'm not pointing the finger at, at, I guess, the early feminist movement saying, you're the reason why men are in crisis. It's nothing to do with that at all. Um, it's actually to do with men not standing up in the middle of it and saying, hey, we could be better. Um, but basically our whole media has transformed into this egalitarian um neoliberal, I would say in some elements, neo-Marxist, um, you know, just force of pushing everything and everyone to be equal. And it actually refuses to look at the biological truths. Um, and there is natural truths that play out. Men and women are different. We're not the same. Yeah. Um, you can look at the big five personality traits as the best example of how uh, men and women are different uh, temperamentally. Um, and, you know, our personality is different. And that's a good thing. This is admirable. I don't, we don't want boys to be girls and we don't want girls to be boys. Um, because we, one of the big, one of my big passions, um, around this body of work is I actually want men to be better husbands and better partners for women. Um, I don't want them to be pieces of shit. Um, I don't want them to let the team down. Um, I actually want them to embrace their masculinity and be the best version of themselves. Um, so they can have happy and successful relationships. And so their partners, um, you know, in a heterosexual relationship, their, their partners, their women, um, can flourish and be the best version of themselves as well and embrace all of the amazing opportunities that this new age society is giving them. Mm. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, where, where I come at it from a core. But, but part of that movement that, that we had towards egalitarianism, um, we started to weed out the... Um, the sexist fathers and that was a good thing right i'm not saying it's a bad thing but in doing so it also i think muted a lot of the fathers that just didn't know where they stood so because parenting is not taught you can't go to school and read a book they will we became so worried about teaching our boys the wrong thing that instead we taught them nothing mm. and this is also a greater trend so um if you look at how males developed historically um, basically you go and you look at a book like Sapiens from Noah, uh, Noah Yuval Harari. Um, one of the key changes in human society is when we went from hunter gatherers, um, to farming. So as a hunter gatherer, um, which you're basically a caveman, right? Um, uh, the boys would go out from a very young age and learn how to hunt and kill and protect and fight and do all the things that the males needed to do to keep society functioning. Um, so they would spend predominantly after, you know, an early age, they would go from spending all of their time with their mother, so which would develop, you know, communication, emotional intelligence, these kind of skills that are traditionally more things that feminine people are more are better at. Um, and then they go and, and they get in the testosterone zone with that and they go out and they hunt some fucking wildebeest and um, the woolly mammoth, we killed them. Um, so, um, you know, you go and you get into that zone and you basically, well, 
I think probably back then is you would over-index testosterone. Um, but that was the role of the male at that period of society. Um, but basically, they learned how to interact with the world as a male from their, from their farmer because they're spending a lot of time with their dad. Um, then we start farming. So what happens when we're farming for the first time? The kids are born. They stay with mum inside until they can basically walk. And then they're outside with their dad on the tools on the farm. And they're learning even though, and this is one of the things people most commonly pull me up on. They go, oh, when you're, when you're tilling the field, um, you're not learning about how to be a functional man in society. And I guess it's not a direct lesson. It's, it's like a process of osmosis. Um, it, it's your photosynthesizing this by being around other men. So you're seeing how your dad treats women, how your dad treats other men, how your dad treats people higher in the social dominance hierarchy, lower in the social dominance hierarchy, and you're observing and learning, right? And because you're around him, you see this play out. Hmm. Then we move, you know, we move forward. Like, okay, there's, there's parts of history where walking down the street, men would tip their hat to women, right? That's a great example of something that you don't, like you would probably tell your son you need to tip your hat to women when you walk past them, right? But it's also something that you learn and is reinforced by walking down your street and seeing your dad do it and seeing other men do it and people that are admirable to you within your society are performing these behaviours like, oh, okay, that's how they respect women. Now, obviously, during these periods, there was a lot of things that we did that didn't respect women as well. And, you know, there's there's no, I guess, uh, there's no shortage of oppression during some of these periods. So, um, you know, we're definitely better at some of these things, but I think we've also got worse at some of these things as well so it's this funny this funny hybrid of the two where you know we think that we're better at respecting women but we're actually probably not um like we've lost some of the things we had in pursuit of the other things that we wanted to have mm. um so basically we go through this we get to the industrial revolution and then that's really when shit starts to hit the wall because all of a sudden dad goes to work in a factory and the son goes to school and for the history of time predominantly school teachers have been women so our boys, they grow up in the house with mum, predominantly, you know, feminine environment. And they learn a lot of great skills from mum, right? Then they go to school and they're with mum 2.0, which is the teacher. So all they learn, and that's similar to, I'm sure your schooling experience was very similar. I had very few male teachers. Mm. Um, so you go through most of the point until 18 um, and you have very minimal male interaction. So the other males that you associate with at school are those of your peer group. So you're all basically as stupid as each other. Like, what do you know about the world? So you're not going to learn off them, right? And then you have a few male teachers. And you might get dad for two hours between 6 o'clock and, and bedtime. And he's also got 10,000 other things to do at home. So he's not really, you know, dedicated and focused on turning you into the best man you can possibly be. Um, so the burden of mentoring young men then fell to other institutions and organisations. So I think if you look in Australia, like it's like the cricket club and the footy club um, and more traditionally, the church. Um, now, obviously, uh, Frederick Nietzsche hypothesised, I think it was 1860, um, the death of God, mm -hmm. um, which basically has become his, I think, his most famous quote. It's his calling um, card. <laughs> It's his, it's his calling card, so to speak. Came down from the metaphorical mountain and pronounced to the world that God is dead. Yeah, correct. And he obviously meant that in the sense that we were going to move away from institutionalised religion, which um, people at this point are like, oh, look at the Catholic Church, look at the Vatican, all these things. I'm like, yeah, yeah. 
But remember, just remember that 40 years ago, we all were going to church on Sundays and now very few people go to church on Sundays. Yes, um, they're very much so a reactive force now and no still... longer a proactive force like they used to be. Correct. Mm. Um, it's a very, it's still part of our culture, but it's uh, very much uh, less prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, so as that's played out, and obviously the, the Catholic Church hasn't helped itself, um, you know, all the pedophiles in the church was awful, um, and that definitely helped deteriorate their position within society more. Um, but if you can think of like the pastor or someone, you know, within the church, they typically, well, they're meant to um, hold themselves to a relatively high moral standard. And that's something admirable and something that young guys can look up to um, and something that can be pointed to within society um, as, a, as a standard bearer for morality and the way that you should approach the world. Um, and then this is also, well, it was also done through, you know, sporting clubs or or other extracurricular activities where you get to hang out with men. Um, now, what's happened most recently is because men are so worried about saying the wrong thing, being sexist, um, all of these things that have come out of the egalitarian movement, is these men that have a responsibility to young men are now abdicating it. Mm. So the guy in the footy club that should be the guy mentoring the young kids is instead sitting at the bar drinking 25 cans of VB. So what do you reckon happens to the 18-year-old kid when he comes in to play senior footy? He thinks, oh, what you do is you finish the game and then you have 25 cans get off your face um, with the boys and then you go home. Well, I'm sorry, that's not like, it's not really admirable. Like that's not something, I don't think that's the highest purpose of of humankind. I don't think it's something we should be aiming towards. I don't have an issue with you having a beer, but now we're getting to this point where we've got so many men that are just not giving back to young men. Mm. Um, Mm. And if anything, they're doing things to young men's detriment that unless these men go out um, and seek out this knowledge themselves um, and go to the libraries, go to the internet, go and find male role models, um, you know, the benefit of this is online has made it possible for them to do that. Um, they don't basically learn how how to interact with the world as a man. Um, why do you think Jordan Peterson's so popular? Mm. The guy is called the internet dad. Mm-hmm. Let me let me just quickly, Jack. I just want to see if I understand this. Um, the main problem here, in in my eyes, from what you're saying, and I think what you're saying is pretty powerful. Uh, the real problem here is that there is a lack of strong, ethically minded, just male role models in our lives as young men. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, so what I'm not suggesting that there's a lack of those men in society, but what I'm saying is that when it comes to burdening the responsibility of helping the younger generation, um, they're abdicating that responsibility I think mainly because of fear and pressure um, from the left. Um, you know, I don't want to make it too political, but you know, there's definitely more um, there's definitely more pressure from the left than there is from the right um, in in those senses. So, like conservative families that maybe are still religious or um, you know maybe still have some more traditional kind of values, definitely um, have higher rates of uh, male role models within those communities. Um, but once we start getting into like, look, I, I just think it's really, really hard if you're, um, if you're not a particularly intellectual guy, right? If you're a man's man, if you're, 
And this isn't to look down on someone and say they're not smart or not intellectual or something. But if you're if you're a builder, right, mm. and you've spent your whole life on job sites, right, I don't expect you to know the literature on the psychology of, of developmental, you know, theory, right? Mm. But what these guys do know is they do know how to conduct themselves in the world. If they've been successful, you know, if they own a building company, they've got 20, 30 guys, they've got a wife and kids and things are good, they know how to conduct themselves in the world. They don't need to be, you know, they don't need to be some Mensa grade um, scientist in order to help young guys. But if they're in a, you know, if they're in a footy club environment and they're sitting down with a couple of young guys um, and they, you know, put a hypothesis out there about this is the way that you should orient yourself in the world, this is the way that you should act, um, because if you do this, good things will happen to you, right? And five of the boys go home and, the, and they go, oh, mum, yeah, Jono from the footy club, he's a legend, he's really helping me out, blah, blah, blah. And one of the kids goes home and he goes, oh, mum, I'm actually not sure if I'm a boy or a girl, um, right? And then the mum's like, oh, fuck, right? My, my, kid's, my kid's trans or my kid's, I don't know what all the abbreviations are, but, you know, they fall into an, into an outlier. Then that parent goes to the footy club, right, and basically, Jono, who's doing a great thing by the whole, by most of the men in the club, gets told, oh, you have to cater for the minority. So don't over-index on masculine lessons because, you know, there could be people that, you know, that don't see the world that way or that isn't their position in life. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong and I don't really know the answer as far as, um, you know, trans and, and all the genders and everything that's going on in that debate. Um, it's not something that, you know, particularly interests me, if I'm honest. Um, I just sort of, I guess I've always taken the approach that you just um, do to others as, as you would like to yourself. So if someone wants to be called a girl, you, then I'll call them a girl. If they want to be called a boy, I'll call them a boy. Like there's no skin off my back. Um, I just, you know, in a, in a more simplistic way, put your penis wherever you want. I don't really care. <laughs> um, it's not my. So, um, you know, like I'm, I'm very libertarian in that sense, but I think it's also dangerous once you start catering for all of these minorities in the general advice that we give to the world. Because how can someone... So now that person that's quite a successful male has been a good male role model to all of the guys that he's had come through his business in the last 30 years, has been a good male role model to his kids. Um, his wife loves him because he's been, a, you know, he's been a good, you know, maybe protector and provider of the family. Um, and then he's trying to pass that on to the next generation. And basically there's this whole movement out there saying, oh, hang on, maybe don't say that because you don't want this person to feel left out or this person to, to feel bad about themselves because that's not what they associate with. I mean, okay, so are you going to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Are you going to lose all of the good things this person could contribute to society on the off chance that they offend one or two people or that one or two people get their feelings hurt? Now, obviously it's not admirable to, um, you know, it's not an admirable or noble thing to, to have people um, feel bad about themselves because of something they've heard. But I think you also can't abdicate the responsibility to the rest of, um, you know, to the rest of the majority, which is what we're doing. We're catering to a minority now in society um, in avoiding these masculine discussions. Um, and it's, it's to everyone's detriment because men aren't being real men. It means that women are, are finding worse partners. Um, how many times have you had a female friend of yours say to me, oh, there's no good men out there? Mm, mm. Yeah, I think, I think the problem there, Jack, is... Um, I think the problem is the fact that we're, we're almost so afraid to offend anyone that we're not actually 
improving the lives of anyone. So what I mean there is like, yeah, I mean, okay, let's say you are, you do fit somewhere else in the spectrum, which is totally fine. If you identify yourself as an outlier, like that's fine. And I think that in understanding that, so let's use your example of the guy at the footy club who's trying to impart, you know, wisdom on men to become uh, better men to their partners, better men in society, better men for themselves to be vulnerable, to be brave, to be comfortable with who they are. Um, when you really seek to understand, okay, this person who identifies themselves somewhere else in the outlier, you could say to that guy, hey, look, I know what you're doing is right. And I think that you're, you're doing some really good things for a lot of men in this community, just to let you know, uh, my son doesn't fit in with that. Um, do you have any suggestions of someone, you know, who might be able to be a good mentor for them? And that way you can't, you can still cater to people who fit in these kind of minority areas by in introducing them to specific mentors but you don't have to stop doing what you're doing like what you're doing by empowering men is not necessarily a bad thing would, would you right. kind of agree I with think, that yeah so the push for egalitarianism and everyone to be equal is at a point now where we're like if we're going to run a seminar on masculinity it should be at a point where uh both girls boys and people that identify as anywhere in between should be able to attend um, and not feel um, not feel like they're an outlier in that group. Like, well, that's not true because there's biological differences between boys and girls. You can't put a girl in, like, you know, there's some things that I've embraced later in life and, and I'll get a little bit into my story as well just to give people a bit of context. Um, but there's some things that I've embraced now later in life to, um, to boost my masculinity that was lacking. Now, I don't expect um, I don't expect my future partner or um, you know any girl for that matter to be interested in the things that I'm interested in, right? I don't. Quite frankly, I don't care. Like, I don't need someone to um, like. I don't. As a guy, like, I don't want to be interested in girly things. Mm. And that's and that's okay if, if if that's who you identify as. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's the problem. Is what you're touching on there is there is. Because of this kind of, uh, I kind of think of it almost like a pendulum, right? Like there was a point in time where, um, you know, women in particular and depending on the color of your skin was, you know, really, there was a lot of prejudice towards those people. And that's not a good yeah, thing. Absolutely. But the problem is a lot of times in history, you see this pendulum effect, right? So instead of it coming yeah. back to the center and everyone being like, okay, cool. Like if you identify as being masculine, that's fucking awesome. If you identify as being feminine, that's fucking awesome. Like you do your thing. I'll do my thing. Uh, let's agree in certain areas to be different. But what happens is this pendulum kind of goes the other way. And now you've got a lot of men, which is what I think you're trying to explain, who have almost become worse because they're so afraid to be masculine. They become assholes. They become predators because they're just so confused by all of the stuff flooding into their minds that they, they don't actually sit down and ask themselves the question, wait, who do I want to be as a person? How do I want uh, to treat other people? How do I want to express myself? Is that yep. along the lines of what you're thinking? Yeah, correct. And that, that I guess that closing statement that you just made then, that really, um, I guess, hypothesizes the third stage as you come out of um, childhood and you, and you actually step into manhood for the first time. And I think for a lot of men, this doesn't happen at 20. This happens at 35. This happens at 40 in our society now, which is, you know, 
it's to me it's really disappointing because they live half their life as an overgrown teenager. Mm. Um, but it's about you wake up and you realize that you can make it. You can make a difference in the world and you can change the way that things have been for years and years and years. And you can be better and you can burden the responsibility and you can suffer through things. Um, and you can make your life better and the life of those around you better by just making the appropriate amount of damn sacrifice mm. um, and not giving in to head, you know, your hedonistic side all the time. Um, and that's really what we're, you know, that moral responsibility um, is, is something that we're failing to teach young men. Um, and it's something that has, um, you know, most recently sort of come to, you know, come into my field of view. And I think it's really interesting you touch on the pendulum. Like, look, everyone's so quick to say, oh, it's gone too far, it's gone this to that. And you just get ended up labelling, you know, people label you a misogynist or, you know, whatever they want to do to avoid actually having a discussion around the topic. Mm. Do I think it's gone too far? Um, I don't know. I don't have any, I don't think it's a simple question to answer. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, I've some of the articles that I read, um, the American, uh, the the I think it's, I want to say AMA or um, American no, Medical Association. Be, sorry, AMA is American Medical Association. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking AMA. It might be the Psychology Association America. Mm-hmm. They came out last year and they said that stoicism was a trait of toxic masculinity. Yeah, right. That's interesting. how. How is that helpful to men? So men are typically like if you go and you look at the big five personality traits and how our brains are like not not we wish the male brain was like this like let's go and look at the evolutionary biology our brains are like this stoicism is something that helps a huge amount of men emotional vulnerability is not something that a lot of men are comfortable with and if they're not struggling then who are you to come and say that that's toxic and unfortunately, the problem with a lot of these, um, and I think it was the American Association of, of Psych- Psychology and Psychiatry, is that you have a huge gender bias in that in that industry. So we talk about gender bias as, as CEOs and things like that all the time, and oh, we should have gender quotas and all of this. Quite frankly, rubbish, right? Because the simple response to any time any type of equality um, that is enforcing um, that is enforcing outcomes simply doesn't work. Right. And secondly, do 50% of women really want to be plumbers? I don't think so. Mm. I don't think that's actually what they want. So why have a quota for CEOs and not a quota for plumbers? Because that's not equal. Right. So gender quotas are rubbish. But if you go and look at the gender bias in psychology, I would guess it's saying 80% of psychologists are female. Right. Mm. So they have a certain worldview, which is absolutely understandable. Um, but I don't, I also don't think that, um, I also don't think that going and labelling something that is inherently masculine as toxic and saying that this is something that's toxic for all males um, is a particularly beneficial thing. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, it should be much more carefully worded and much more carefully studied because stoicism is a super important trait for a lot of men. It helps them get through the world and make the world a better place. And for some men, it's toxic. And that's my big issue really is around the use of the phrase toxic masculinity. It's something that we need to remove from our vocabulary um, because what is toxic masculinity? Can you define it for me? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that that is a problem. I agree with you. And I, I don't, I was actually going to ask you a question about toxic masculinity. So it's kind of cool that we've, we've wound up here because I'm also of the opinion that it's not the right way to look at it. I think by labeling things as toxic masculinity 
you're confusing young men into thinking that being themselves, which is potentially quite masculine, is toxic. So then they go down this route of not understanding who they are, of not um, identifying as who they are, and then they end up uh, showing signs of what is deemed as toxic masculinity, which is just toxic behavior in general. Like, just label it that. You know, this is toxic behavior. This is a, a byproduct of you not understanding you know, who you are as a person, not understanding your masculinity. Masculinity itself isn't toxic. A lot of the, the greatest men that I know are, are masculine. They show signs of stoicism, but then they also embrace sides that are coined as feminism or, or something predominantly female. So things like vulnerability and emotional intelligence. So labeling something toxic masculinity, I, I tend to agree with you there, is, is having more negative outcomes than it is having positive outcomes. It's like the way I like to think of it, Jack, is let's say you and I meet in a bar and we've never met before and I look at you and straight away I go, I fucking hate this dude and I push you up against a wall. What's your reaction going to be? I, so, and I think what you're really getting at, just to like, not answer the direct question but to, um, to circle it around to something I was just thinking about, what you're talking about is antisocial behavior. Yes. What you're talking about is behavior, right? Because pushing someone up against the wall in a bar is antisocial, mm -hmm. right? So what you've done in that moment is you've broken the social contract in which we all enter into at birth, whether you like it or not, that this is the way that society functions, right? So you're not violent for no good reason, right? That's not something that's admirable in society. And if we all did that, society wouldn't function. So part of this unwritten social contract we enter into is we won't do that even though we could, right? So when you go and do that, it's a sign of antisocial behavior. It's a breaking of the social contract. And the really interesting thing about the psychology is the people that are more likely to do that are the ones that aren't socialized properly at a young age. So if your child isn't socialized by the age of four, he will be antisocial. And there's a really interesting uh, there's a really interesting piece of psychology that works in the penal system. Um, and it's basically about drying men out, right? So if they're a, if they're a youth offender, um, you put them in jail until they're about 27 and then you let them out and everything goes away, right? Because your testosterone peaks by 27 and then it starts to decline, mm -hmm. right? And what happens as soon as the testosterone goes down, away goes the antisocial behaviour, right? Now, this is definitely... Testosterone is also a very important thing for a lot of different things. So let's just not take it as a negative thing, right? If you socialise your kid properly right, and you use the appropriate amount of rough and tumble play as a child, and we see this study in rats and, and a lot of different things as well, right, all animals, all mammals in particular, need rough and tumble play to develop their brain to understand the, basically the social con construct in which we live in, right? When enough because is when enough, get... essentially. When, when you're doing Sorry. too much. When, when by, by having that kind of social rough and tumble play when you're younger, you kind of understand the boundaries that you have of yourself and that of other people have. Is that correct? Correct. And you, and you learn not to hurt people, right? Because mm. there's a certain amount of... And we now do that with, with words. So if you and I get to a conversation that is that we don't agree on, right, we will joust with our words, but I won't... I will choose... Like, okay... And this is a really interesting, a really interesting study is if there's a big rat and a little rat, right? The big rat will win 75% of the time when they're play fighting and they'll let the little rat win 25% of the time. So the little rat is interested in still playing, 
So if we get into a debate, right, about something that I know a lot more about than you, like let's not say it's right or wrong, I just have better facts or better research or whatever, right? I will still, in that verbal jousting match, I will still concede some points to you. So you're interested in keeping playing with me if that's what I'm, if I'm interested in having a debate, I'm not just going to try and steamroll you, right? Because then that's, that's not fun. No one's interested in that. And then you walk away and you say, well, I'm never talking to that dickhead ever again, right? And then that's the end of a good relationship. So that's something that we, you know, that evolves from the physicality and it translates into words. So we learn how to interact in society by pushing people's boundaries. Oh, if I push my brother's arm back this way, it really hurts and he cries. That's not good, mm. right? And that becomes the same thing with feelings and emotions and, and all of these things. Um, so that plays out. The, the really interesting thing is if you look at kids that have issues with antisocial behaviour um, and basically, you know, end up being violent or end up being, a, a you know, a menace to society, um, it's often because they are socially isolated because they weren't, um, they weren't integrated with society early enough. So I'm sure you've, you know, you've spent some time around young kids in your life. Um, I have two younger cousins, right? And they've got, I, I think there's two, three years between them, right? My older cousin will not play with my younger cousin. So four years old will definitely not play with two years old, right? And me at 25 years old, in order to play with my young cousin, I have to bring myself down to their level right? Because they definitely won't play with a seven-year-old as well. So a four-year-old won't play with a seven-year-old, a two-year-old won't play with a four-year-old. So if your child has the social um, conditioning of a two-year-old, but at the age of four, right, all of its peers at the kindergarten won't play with it, right? Because your kid is still beating kids up. He's still going too far. He hasn't learned how to socialise and, and work within the boundaries of society yet. So what do the other kids do? They push him in the corner and they leave him alone. And that only makes the problem worse, right? And then what happens is we have this, and this typically happens with young men because most young men, most offenders in society, most people in prison are men, right? Um, and that's when we start seeing People label it toxic masculinity, but antisocial behaviour, that's when it manifests. Mm. As soon as that kid is ostracised from society because their parents don't mentor it and provide the adequate level of support and adequate level of rough and tumble play and interaction with other young humans, right, as soon as that gap opens up, it's very, very hard to close. Mm. And it pretty much doesn't get closed until 27 because yeah. then the testosterone starts to calm down, they mellow out and they start to learn things. So, so really, instead of, I think this is kind of a, a result of this culture we're kind of falling into nowadays of this outrage culture where it's, if you don't believe what I believe, I'm shutting you down and I'm not going to be willing to hear your, your side of the story, right? So I think this kind of plays out with this idea of toxic masculinity is instead of looking at it and going, okay, hold on, why are these men playing out? Like, why are they a menace to society? When you really start asking those questions, you see, okay, it's because they don't understand masculinity, not because they're toxic as males. It's because they just don't understand the boundaries of who they are identifying as masculine. Which... Well, they just don't understand how to be a real man. I, I don't consider any man that rapes and pillages a real man. Yeah. Like, look, it's different. It is different because we, we also hold Chinggis Khan up on a pillar as a guy that basically raped and pillaged half of the world, right? Mm -hmm. He was a warrior. It was of the time. That's what they did. Now, you can't go and do that now. It's not something that we do. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not going to 
I guess one of the hard things we have is that a lot of the historical cases don't play out in our society, right? So Genghis Khan, whilst he might have been the alpha male of, I can't even remember when he was around, but you know, a couple of thousand years ago, he was the peak alpha male, right? You don't want your kids to be like Genghis Khan, right? I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is there's a level between there and between, you know, absolute femininity that is the correct amount of masculine energy to put into the world that actually manifest really positive things for society. And that's what we're trying to get. That That's my mission is to try and get more men to that place. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, Jack. I think that's a good way to look at it. And in terms of what yeah. I was saying, like this kind of outrage culture and cancel culture that we have now, having more conversations oh, like the one... bullshit. Yeah, yeah. But like having, having the conversations like we're having now, right, Jack, where we're able to engage in an open discussion. And although I'm, cer- I'm certain that there'll be things that you don't agree with in terms of what I believe, and I'm certain that there'll be things that I don't agree with in terms of you believe, but the fact that we're both able to sit here and have an open conversation about something that's deemed uh, contentious, that this... This is part of the reason why I do this podcast is so that people are more open to just, okay, now I understand where this person's coming from. Okay, now we can find a real solution instead of just focusing on the problems and pushing people into corners and ending up with far worse results than if we just sought to understand the problem in the first place and to do something about it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, well, like, and just to address that, like, three things. Firstly, um, you know, obviously, thank you for the opportunity to discuss with you. Um, And I think that one of the great things that podcasts like this do is it allows other people to look at us. um, And we're basically engaging in, you know, rough and tumble play. So people are seeing me, right, push your boundaries as far as I can without offending you. And you push my boundaries as far as you can without offending me. Right, because you're trying to get to the bottom of what I'm talking about and you're trying to work it out and just make sure that you're on the right path. And I'm trying to impress my point onto you in a way that's coherent and, and, and effective. And hopefully people can look at that and go, okay, here's people that here's two people that don't share identical beliefs, but they're able to have a conversation. And if it wasn't COVID, we'd be able to walk away and have a I don't drink anymore. We'd be able to have a beer after this. Yeah. yeah. Um, or a coffee. You know, I don't and, really and drink either, so we can have we can have a coffee when we're when we're allowed to, bro. I'd be super keen for that. <laughs> Correct. So that's one of the um, that's one of the great things about dialogues like this, and hopefully people can see that and learn how to interact with people that have opposing viewpoints in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I do very regularly because I like testing the boundaries, um, and and it's helpful. It helps me get along with more people. Um, I guess the um, one of the uh, one of the overarching things with the council culture is even if I don't agree with. Everything that you're, everything that coming out of your mouth, I could absolutely not agree with. I will defend to the death your right to say it. Um, and freedom of speech is one of the pillars of democracy. Um, although it's not enshrined in in uh, in our constitution in Australia, there is some there's some mild common law protections for freedom of speech in the media around um, political things. It's sort of an assumed right in Australia, but generally throughout the West, it's something that's very important. Um, cancel culture. It strikes at the core of freedom of speech. Mm. To to cancel someone because you don't like what they're saying is quite simply, um, I, I see it as an act of neo-Marxism. I, I, I really think that you need to go and you need to go and read um, Alexander Scholz-Nitsen's uh, Gulag Archipelago and find out what happens when you don't have freedom of speech, mm. right? Because 100 million people between Maoist China and Soviet Russia died during that little experiment in the 20th century, and it's not something that you want to replicate, mm. right? 
unfortunately, and, and I, I never thought I'd quote Ben Shapiro, but unfortunately, facts don't care about your feelings. Mm. Um, and people can't, you can't cancel people because it makes you feel upset and it makes you feel insufficient. Mm. There has been many, many times in my life when I felt insufficient as a man because I haven't fully understood what's going on. Now, that's not something that I have to contend with anymore. I've never felt more confident as a man. I've never felt more secure in myself after actually going and doing the work, making the appropriate amount of sacrifices with the things I need to sacrifice in um, and doing a little bit of suffering, going through some pain. Um, I've had a lot of emotional pain to get to where I am today, um, but it's not something that should be shied away from. And that's what I see in society. It's like, oh, that hurt my feelings. Well, hey, you know what Carl Jung said? They said the thing, he basically hypothesized that the first time you see your shadow, right? So the first time you see the evil within yourself is when you hate someone else, mm. right? You are what you hate inherently. Mm. So every time I see someone and I'm like, God, oh, this person really grinds my gears. It makes me think. I stop and I don't think that person's a, a piece of shit human. That person doesn't deserve an opinion. What an idiot. What a stupid person. I go, Hang on. Why am I reacting to that that way? Mm. Like, why am I so upset that this person thinks that? Mm. I think that's and powerful. Then I... Yeah, I, I, I think that's powerful, bro, what you just touched on. And I think regardless of who you identify as, uh, where you fit in the gender spectrum, asking yourself that question is one of the most powerful things you can do. And it'll probably alleviate a, 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 lot, of the, a lot of what we see today in terms of this cancel culture. If people actually sat there and went, I don't agree with this person, they're a piece of shit, and then went, oh, hold on. Like, why does it, why does it matter that I don't agree with this person? If that's what they believe, the, the real question I need to ask myself is why am I so against this person? Why do I hate this person so much? And it's like you say, when you ask yourself those questions, you start discovering more about your darkness inside and you start being able to identify your suffering and then making changes to increase your kind of circle of influence, what you can control, who you are as a person. And when you become a better person, Regardless of whether that's a more masculine person, more feminine person, whatever it is, you become a better person in society in general, right? Yeah, I think that one of the, you know, one of the really interesting things um, that I see in, in United States politics at the moment is um, part of our, part of uh, evolving as humans has been denying ourselves um, biological wants and needs. So, there's part of our brain that wants to be tribal. There's part of our brain that wants to be this way or that way. And in order to maintain the society we have, we choose to not even engage in those behaviours. Um, I know, you know, we've, we've had a, a previous discussion about um, monogamy um, and you have, you know, thoughts around that. I, I, I am a monogamist um, and I see a lot of value in it. Um, I know you share slightly differing beliefs, but what, you know, from some of the reading I've done is that my for me to conform to monogamy, which I think is the best way forward in society, it means that I have to deny myself biological. There's biological impulses that will happen at my brain from time to time that I have to fight as hard as I possibly can to uphold my moral standard. Um, because you will be tempted. Um, because you basically, you know, as a human, you're here to reproduce, right? Particularly as a male. So you're 27, your testosterone's peaking. You want to fuck everything that moves, right? But you don't. <laughs> Because society doesn't work like that. Um, and, it, and if you try, right, things don't typically end, end up going that well for you in my experience, right? Now, you probably have different experiences. So um, that's somewhere where we can disagree. But um, generally, um, you know, something like that is you actually taking on 
you know, taking on responsibility and fighting against a primal urge within, inside you. And what I see in American politics is you have a lot of people that just hate the president at the moment um, and they just hate him with a passion. And a lot of them can't actually tell you why they hate him mm-hmm. or they give you some generic answer like, why do you hate Trump? Oh, because he's racist. And then you say, well, can you point out one time in which he was actually racist? And no one ever can because it's actually a little bit more difficult to do than what they think. Um, so, you know, and, and things like that, it, it's very, it's it's strong opinions. It's actually, it, it's very strong opinions that should be loosely held, but instead they're very strongly fought for with very minimal material evidence. And I actually think what you're seeing is a lot of people are having this outward um, it's an emotional reaction because that hate and anger is, is like an emotion that's coming out of them because they themselves are denying maybe a, a biological response to a certain situation and they're seeing other people in society coming out and expressing that so openly um, and something that they're suffering against and they're, they're suppressing within themselves in order to conform to their view of morality um, is then being so openly expressed by someone else, right? What they're seeing is their shadow, right? So if you are one, like, think about this so simply, right? If you're a natural human being, you're a little bit tribal, right? And I think tribalism is really the basis on which racism is formed. Now, at some point, there becomes a malevolent evil in racism. Like you look at what the Nazis did to to the Jews, that's beyond tribalism. That's just mm. evil, right? Um but one of the one of the elements I see is I think people get so angry at other racists is because they have to, they've tried so hard not to be a racist themselves. They've fought against their tribal urges. They're doing the right thing in society to not be a racist. And to see someone else being a racist, you're like, hang on, why do you get to do it? But I don't. This is bullshit, right? But what you're actually seeing is the shadow. What you're seeing is the part of you out there in the world that is racist that you suppress and instead you should look at that like for me i look at someone and if i see them being racist i go gee i say look you know i i I, that's not me and i and i say i identify i identify i see that part of me in the world because that part is part of me it's in there Mm. right but i fight against that every day to keep it down and i walk away if i have to say to someone that, that you know that's racially vilifying someone like i've had Look, I've had circumstances where I've seen, like, you know, taxi drivers and things like that, you know, racially abused, and I've stepped in and said, mate, pull your fucking head in. Like, why are you speaking? You shouldn't speak to anyone like that, and it doesn't matter, right? I'm not saying I'm the biggest anti-racism campaigner, but I'll generally try and step in if I see something that I think is, has crossed the line. I'll try and step in and stamp it out. Um, and I, I walk away from that not going, geez, there's so many pieces of shit in society and I'm so angry. I walk away from that thankful that I was able to do the shadow work to integrate that into myself and and look at me and go, yeah, I could be a racist bigot, but I choose not to be. Mm. I choose to be better. Mm. I choose to be a moral and righteous person that's trying to bring good into the world. Mm. Mm. I think the key key takeaway that I'm getting from what you just said, Jack, is that before people start uh, passing out judgment on others and throwing their opinions out into the ether, the first step is to really focus on getting yourself to a solid place. And I think that's what a lot of uh, people are trying to push. Uh, a lot of strong masculine figures from totally different areas, people like Aubrey Marcus, people like Jordan Peterson, are trying to push that idea of just get yourself solid, build your own kind of um, structure, and then you're naturally going to influence people to be 
in a more positive way if you just focus on doing the self work um so yeah I, i agree with that concept and i think a lot of men out there who are struggling with identifying their their own kind of level of masculinity or identifying who they are as a person the key takeaway really is to just work on yourself sit with yourself ask yourself the hard questions like who am i who do i want to be how do i want to show up to the world do i want to be known as that racist asshole or do i want to be known as a just strong you know masculine figure that treats everyone kindly and the way i'd want to be treated yeah i think that um you know you touched on some really good things in there um and you know like i, I just love <laughs> jordan it's it's a meme of jordan peterson now but just clean your room yeah. right and actually what would do what would do you better than that is go on youtube and look up what jordan peterson means by clean your room because cleaning your room is a hell of a lot harder than what you think it is mm. um the second element of that um that you sort of touched on is and, and i know you're a big you're a big practitioner of meditation um there is a lot of things that you can do to get more in touch with yourself and i think meditation can be a great place to start um breath work holotropic breath work things like that can be great tools um one tool that i'm adding in post covid i'll be adding in martial arts for the first time in uh, i think i practiced martial arts probably like 15 years ago for like, like when i was a little tacker cool, um so i'll be going back to jujitsu um to get a little bit more masculinity and a little bit more rough and tumble because i feel like i need that um one of the things that um i am i'm getting into shooting and hunting um not saying that everyone needs to but um it, for me it's about I firstly, I believe in eating like really good organic, um, you know, wild caught meat and produce. So there'll be a big element of me hunting and eating everything that I eat. Um, but there's also something inherently masculine about that and being outside and things like that. Even nature's a really good thing. Um, go on a bushwalk and go on rough it for, um, you know, for, for three, four days if that's your cup of tea. Look, I like my cushy inner city life, but. Um, you know, these little experiments that I'm trying are to push me out of my comfort zone and embrace my masculinity. So mm. they're probably a couple of things that I would suggest um, that guys could try to start um, getting in touch with these things. Um, and I guess that the, the personal story that I will share with you, because I did promise to share you one before. Yeah, go um, on. When I really realized, so the, the first thing that I, the reason I realized a lot of these things was uh, the breakdown of a relationship um with a, um, you know, with a, with a beautiful woman. Um, and I walked away and I realized I was like, shit, I thought I had it together, but I did not have it together. Um, and that was basically the catalyst. Um, but then where all this rooted back to, um, and firstly, so firstly, the big thing with that was taking responsibility. Um, and that's one of the core things. So extreme ownership and responsibility is an essential trait of, of a masculine male. So, um, actually taking ownership of your actions and looking at what you've done. Um, I've had so many guys, you know, when I've spoken about relationships or relationship breakdowns and they, they're always so quick to be like, oh, but, you know, it takes two to tango. It, it takes two people to break a relationship. Yeah, it might. But what are you going to do about the other person? You can't change them. You either love them and accept them for who they are, which is what I try and do, right? And you look at them and you go, hey, every person has flaws, but I love you for those flaws, Right but I can work on my flaws, mm-hmm. right? And you take responsibility for the shit you've done. The only thing you can burden is if something's not working is the things that you're doing to make it not work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you fix, okay, so if, if you think you're so good, if you want to play God, right? If you think that you've fixed everything that you possibly can and you go back to that person or to that relationship or to, to whatever, 
and you're sitting there and that person hasn't changed and you can't deal with that, well, now you have to leave, right? Because you can't force them to change. Yeah. The only thing you can do is you can you can create a supportive environment to allow them to embrace themselves. Mm. Um, and that's something that, that I've become very focused on. So one of the roles of masculinity is to create an environment where um, women can flourish, um, you know, without sharing. I, I, I'm quite a private person, so I don't want to share too much. But one of the things that, that really crippled me when I was meditating after the breakdown of this relationship was this partner saying to me, oh, um, you don't let me be myself. I really struggled to be myself. And I didn't understand what that meant at the time. I like, you do whatever the fuck you want. Like, I'm not a tyrant. Um, but it wasn't that. What I was actually being asked for is, can you hold space as a man for me to express my feminine chaos? Um, because masculinity typically associated with order and femininity in like archetypically associated with chaos, not saying that women are chaos and men are all, not that at all. It's just, a, a, it's an archetype. You're probably going to a little bit more to understand what I'm talking about quickly. Um, but basically it's about the yin, the yin and the yang, right? So your role as a, as a male is to be the yin to her yang or vice versa. Yin's actually the feminine, right? So she is... She will express, and I was again like, "Fuck!" You have to preface everything. This is in a heterosexual <laughs> relationship, um, but you have to, in in so many senses, um, you have to create the space for your partner to be a woman and to be the person that she wants to be. And that's something that I wasn't doing. Um, I think mainly the reason I was failing in that is because um, I was too I was too egalitarian. Um, so because of my upbringing and all the media I'd consumed and everything about toxic masculinity, I was so worried about being too much of a man and too much of an oppressor um, that I actually abdicated my responsibility for masculinity completely. Um, and I was basically a passenger. I was basically, you know, um, I think at times, and it was probably really confusing because at times and then at times I because of the hyper masculinity I'd want to go the other way so I'd go the other way into hyper femininity and then that's really unattractive for a woman mm. they're sitting there being like what the hell I don't want I want to be with someone that's acting like another woman I don't want to be in a lesbian relationship I want to be in a straight relationship I want to be with a man right um so that basically plays out and at the end of that um I, I looked at it and I'm like where am I getting these where am I getting these things from like why don't why isn't this encoded into my into my DNA? Why don't I understand this? Um, and I looked at my parents' relationship and um, my parents divorced when I was quite young, which you can read the studies around divorce isn't always the best thing for kids, but a lot of people overcome divorce. So that's definitely not an excuse. Um, but I would say that my parents played reverse gender roles. So my mum, who I have a very close relationship with now, um, is very, very masculine. So... Um, much more masculine than most women are. And my father um, is much more feminine than most men are. So what my idea of being a man was, was what my dad was, but he wasn't typically masculine. So it wasn't until I went through a little bit of life and I realized, oh, hang on, I've sort of been stitched up here because what I thought was being a man wasn't being a man. I actually should have been more like my mom than what I was like my dad. But at the start, I, I had my wires crossed a little bit. Mm. Um, so that was one of the things that... Um, you know, that was one of the things I, I had to go through and, you know, and without, I guess, sharing any, anyone else's business too much, my father has his own struggles and, and his own life and things that haven't always played out the right way for him, you know. A failed marriage the first time around, that's not a good thing. Um, second partner that fell apart, 
He had a business that fell apart in the GFC. Um, you know, he's had a tough life. He's done his fair share, share of suffering. But I think that he's on, um, you know, he's on a journey for himself now, finding, um, you know, finding a bit of happiness. And that's overseas. And that's as, um, you know, we still speak, but that's as less less of a physical mentoring role in my life than ha- as he's previously been. Mm. So I couldn't go to my dad to sort these things out. So I had to go. I had to go and do my own research. I went and I read. I went and I listened to people like Jordan Peterson. Um, go and listen to people like Joe Rogan, who's probably a little bit more, I would say, a little bit more left than than Jordan Peterson. Mm. Um, but he's also masculine and also you know martial arts and hunting and all of these things. So you start to get a balance because it's important to be balanced. Don't go and um, you know you can go and listen to people like Ben Shapiro, Charlie Kirk. Um, really good guys that, that talk about masculinity and, and societal dynamics in the US, um, but they are more right of centre. So if you if you don't want to be politically biased, I suggest that you also um, you know you balance it out and you go and you you research a few things. Like Dan Dapani is a Buddhist monk that I absolutely love. I love Dan Dapani's work. Yeah. Um, Mantak Chia, another great guy, men's sexuality um, and, and things like that. He's uh, a Qigong master. Yeah. Um, that's completely left of centre. So. You know, it's about balancing a lot of these things and, and really informing yourself. And those, um, once you start to understand the why and why things are happening to you this way and why you're struggling to embrace masculinity, um, you can, I guess, start to work on it and start moving forward. Yeah. Um, and if I'm honest with you, I've had a lot of guys that have said to me, um, you know, oh, I, I'm drawn towards more feminine things. You know, I, I like this, I like that doesn't really matter like what you like just um, find out like, what you, you like. can be just find out what you like that's important right yeah well like i, I don't like I, look i don't think that if a guy likes fashion right i don't think that that makes him any less of a man i think that the three tenets really of being a man is protect provide and preside um and this is a concept i learned from a guy called ryan mickler um, who has a huge podcast. It's called uh, Order of Man. Mm. Um, and basically your your job is to protect society and, and protect women, not in an oppressive way, but you have natural biological truths. You're bigger and stronger than women are, right? If there's a war, your wife shouldn't go to war, right? I, I understand equality. I understand there's certain women that want to be in the military. You go for it, right? Absolutely, 100% for it. You can do whatever you like. I'm a libertarian, whatever you want to do, right? But... The example that I give to I give to young men is you know back in back in the day um, there was conscription so they turned up at your doorstep and, and and you had to go to war it wasn't a choice you didn't get to volunteer to, you could volunteer but um, there, there was points in time when you were conscripted into the army mm. right and the way I think about it is imagine in an egalitarian world right that both men and women could be conscripted now imagine. You know, you're at your family home and the, and the military turn up at your door. And it's you, um, I have a sister and a mum, right? So it's me, my dad, my mum and my sister. And they and they look and they say, oh, listen, uh, Emily, my sister, you're, you're being conscribed. You, you're being sent to war, right? At that point, not in some pseudo, um, I was going to say pseudo hunger games, like martyrdom kind of thing, right? I take her place because that's how it works, mm. right? Because she shouldn't, if, if she wants to go, she can still go. Like, I'm not saying she can't go, but what I'm saying is if she doesn't want to go and we're all being, like someone's being forced to go, it's my job to go, mm. right? That's part of being a male. Mm. 
Unfortunately, you burden the natural truths, right? You're bigger, you're stronger, you're better at fighting, right? Well, if you're trained, obviously, there's always exceptions to the rule. Like Ronda Rousey would knock a lot of dudes out, right? But um, you, like, in that point, you're now protecting the family and you're protecting society. You go, that's part of a male's responsibility. Mm. You don't shy away from that, unfortunately. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a particularly nice situation to think about, but I think thinking about these dark situations starts to give us a grasp on other things. So when you see someone being racist, right, it's your job to stand up, not your wife's job to stand up, right? You stand up and you protect society. You see someone doing something wrong, you step in, right? It's not up to, um, they can, it's not about them not being able to or not having the right to, right? But it's about training yourself as a man to make sure that you go first, that you're doing the things that protect society and make sure that you're actually trying to make the world a better place, mm. that you're protecting the vulnerable, that you're not, you know, um, abdicating the responsibility of society. So that's the first um, pillar. Mm. I guess, do you have any points on that, on protection? Um, no, I think, I think I agree with what you're saying, like psychologically, biologically like men want to be in a protective role and there's nothing wrong with that um i think a lot of men kind of trip themselves up when they they feel like they're doing the wrong thing by being protective or being masculine or being manly and there's nothing wrong with that if that's who you are be that person and and like you said there's always exceptions to the rule like if you're a woman and you feel that way then do that like be who you are Uh, but just because you feel manly inside and you feel like maybe other people will think that's wrong of you to express your masculinism. Like if that's a word, I think that's a word. Um, mm. It's not really? wrong. It's not <laughs> wrong. <laughs> it might be like, oh, let's have a look at the dictionary. But yeah, I, I agree, man. It's not, it's not wrong to express who you are inside. Like don't feel like you yeah. can't be manly because the world tells you you can't be manly. That's only going to leave you in a more depressed place, a sadder place. But anyway, Jack, I, 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 I th- just quickly, we've got we've been going for about an hour and a half, so I've got a couple more questions I wanted to ask you. Um, but before I ask you those quick questions, do you want to touch on those other pillars that you were? Yeah, I'll race, I'll race through them quickly. Um, the one thing, as you were speaking, that I thought just with protect is jealousy. Is jealousy can be a real issue. You need to keep your jealousy in, in check, um, and we also are trying to avoid violence as much as possible violence is the end threat and it's the only thing that it's actually violence is the only reason our society is together um which people don't like to think about that they think we can solve everything with words um the reason democracy works right globally right the reason why the west can negotiate with the east is because we've both got nuclear weapons and if you don't do what we tell you to do we can still blow you up right but we should always use democracy first right use our words before we use action so i'm not encouraging men to go out there and rip other guys' heads off and, and things like that. But it's about being strong and assertive. Um, provide is probably the most, um, I guess, most controversial because then there's people that are like, oh, I, I want to be a stay-at-home dad. I want to be this. I want to be that. I'm like, cool, bro. You do you, right? I'm a libertarian. I don't give a fuck what you do, right? But whether you're the breadwinner as far as like financially or, or money-wise, um, I guess you could say more simplistically, um, or um, if you're a stay-at-home dad that earns completely zero dollars, right? Providing for the family has no correlation to money. And I would suggest that most people explore that as a concept more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, providing for them emotionally, being emotionally stable is one of the best um, one of the best things you can do. We all know that women are more emotionally, you know, um, what's that? volatile, more emotionally volatile than men. Men are typically more, more stoic, more sort of go with the flow, right? 
Your job is to be that rock in society for your partner so they can express themselves, so they can be elated, so they can be sad, and you're, you're the balance, right? You're there. They can come back to you. It's a safe place. Um, so that, that's where how I really view it as, as providing. It, it can be money, but it doesn't have to be. Mm. Um, and then preside. Um, preside's just, a, I, for me, it's a fancy word for leadership, right? So it's about being a thought leader um, and, um, and, and a leader within your community. So I don't think that, um, I'm not saying that women can't be leaders by any means because it's not, it's not mutually exclusive, right? But it's about actually standing up for yourself and what you believe in and, you know, protecting and providing for your community in the form of leadership. Mm. Um, so if you see something that's wrong, you take a stand and you lead. Um, and often you'll find in life there's a lot of people that, that, that don't want to lead. They don't want the responsibility. And if you really want to embrace your masculinity in a positive sense, you grab those people, you bring them together and you go, I know you all think the, the same thing, so rally behind me and I'll take us forward into a place of, of moral righteousness. Mm. Um, so that's what I think the three pillars are. Um, Ryan Mickler, Order of Man, great podcast if you want to get more. Yeah, I'll check it out. That. I've written down a couple of things um, you've said actually. Now, there's a lot of like biblical and, and God references because it is American. Um, I'm I'm agnostic. Um, I'm actually performing a... a um, I'm performing an analysis on Genesis at the moment that will be on my YouTube channel in the next three months. Um, so I'm very across the archetypes from the Bible, um, but I don't practice as much. So it's easy for me to listen to because I understand what they're talking about. Um, but sometimes the feedback I get is that listening to them and they're like, oh, these people are just Bible bashers. Bothers. <laughs> if you can get through that, there's like a lot of good stuff in there. You just have to remember that a lot of the guys that he has on the show are from like parts of America where religion is still very, very prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a couple of uh, a couple of questions you want yeah, to work through. Yeah, a couple of quick questions, and then I'm going to move into what Let's I call the four and one. Um, so first of all, yeah. uh, thanks so much for doing this, bro. Like it takes it takes a lot of vulnerability and bravery to share your points of view, and I think it's really really good and healthy to, like I said earlier on, to have more discussions like this where people are open to understanding each other's point of views, to bouncing off it, and then just work towards a, a greater understanding. Like that's the goal, really. You don't have to be right all the time. Like just try and understand people and try and encourage people to be who they are. They don't have to be your type of person, yeah? Um, so thank you for doing this. Um, just quickly, five tips or tools that just run through them as quick as you can um, that you would give to guys struggling to embrace their masculinity and in a, in a more broader sense, identify with who they, who they really are. Um, can I ask you a question just quickly? Go Are you going to ask me for a book recommendation at all? Uh, not quite. I'm just reading okay, my... that's good because I'm going to throw it in here. Okay, good. Um, I just don't, want to, just don't want to ruin one of your player questions. Yeah. Um, okay. The first thing I would do if I was a guy that... And you know how I would best describe it is you feel a bit lost, right? Which is actually normal. There's a lot of men's help books that talk about feeling lost. That's a normal, uh, a normal thing. Um, but the one thing that gives you actually meaning is, is having a purpose and working towards something. Um, I think one of the best, one of the best tools, um, on the market right now, it will cost you $20 from Amazon is by Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. Now I don't care what you think about Jordan Peterson, right? Because facts don't care about your feelings. Right. You, if you think he's a misogynist, if you listen to this and you think Jordan Peterson's a misogynistic pig because of what you've seen in the media um, and the hyper um, 
the hyper-edited clips, um, I, I firstly, I can tell you, you're probably wrong. Um, but secondly, I would say if you could put that aside for the sake of mankind for one second and read 350 pages of non-biased um, work that is, it's like mild psychology. So Jordan's first book, Maps of Meaning, was published in 97. Um, it is a very, very difficult read. It's heavily, um, it's, it's, it's basically, it's proper academic text, right? I don't recommend people go for that. The idea with 12 Rules for Life um, is that a, a literary agent said, well, can you break down your work into a more um, easy to access kind of um, kind of material? So 12 Rules, it's light, it's sort of like, it, it, it's very serious, but it also jokes a little bit as well. Um, and it talks a lot about like evolutionary biology, psychology, um, and all of the things that play out in our society. So I think that's a really good foundation to get a feel for um, for how society works um, and how things function and how you can move yourself through it um, in a um, in a positive way. Mm. Um, there is a once you've read that book, I'm pretty convinced that you will probably want to read more or listen to more Jordan Peterson. He's his podcast is amazing. Um, some of the things that you'll learn about the social contract, um, so that's the contract in which we all interact birth in how we're going to interact with other humans, um, and it will help you so much. Mm. So I guess one of the one of the things that I always heard um, growing up is um, people would say, oh, you've got it. Um, you have it. What the fuck is it? Right, so I'm going to these workplaces and everyone's telling me that I'm, apparently I'm going to do great things. I had no idea what that meant, right? Um, and it was something around playing the game. Like I understood how that everything was really just, you know, gameplay. Um, and that's what some of Jordan Peterson's work cracks into as well. It starts to help you. Um, it starts to help you understand um, how things work and, and, you know, actions and reactions and how societal things come together. So, it's like if you embrace your masculinity, these things will happen and these things will also happen and then you can start to weigh the pros and cons of situations. Mm. Um, so I think that's a really good a really good place to start. And I've, I've um, read that book as well, Jack, and I did test for it. All bias aside, um, regardless of what you think of them, I agree that that book was, was a really good read, um, yeah, regardless of your feelings about the author himself. Yeah, correct. And I don't think that his... His political views definitely don't come through in, in, in the book. No, like, so if you're worried about it being political, it's not at all. Um, so I, I just think that's a really great place to start. It gives you a really good foundation and we start to get into some of the things we've spoken about today. Um, you know, I don't expect people to go and research attachment theory straight away and, like, want to go down that rabbit hole because it's dense, right? Yeah. It's proper medical journals. It's a bit, bit boring, <laughs> um, to say the least. But, like, Jordan Peterson's like a soft... It's like a soft entry and you, and you enter into the world and then you might want to discover a bit more. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good start. Um, the second thing, um, the second thing I would do is, um, and this is probably based a little bit on, um, it's the, the famous Ben Shapiro quote, facts don't care about your feelings. Um, so I would go, there's a Twitter page called Life Math Money. And there's actually a, a blog as well where the guy writes long form. Now, I don't agree with everything this guy says. Um, I think his name's Harsh. I don't agree with everything he says um, by any means. He says some pretty pretty old world stuff. Um, but I actually think that that's an amazing tool um, for, because how long's a tweet? Like 120 characters, right? 
go and follow that. Correct. If you don't have Twitter, because Twitter's not big in Australia, I assume most of your audience is Australian. Mm. Um, but go make a Twitter account, set up tweet notifications just for that one guy, and just follow it for two weeks, right? And what it might give you, because what I think it, it gives you is a little bit of a reset right? So you start to see that not everyone looks at the world the same way that CNN or um, the leftist media do, because the media pretty much typically, unless you watch a lot of Fox News, typically sit a little bit to the left. Um, so you see a lot of, you know, neoliberal, borderline Marxist ideas um, pretty much consistently pushed out into society. So there's a lot of egalitarianism and a lot of things like that. <coughs> Sorry, I'm just dying a little bit. Yeah, okay. um, thinking about all the, I was just thinking about all the bullshit that I see in the media. Um, that's why I don't watch no, the news, mate. Yeah, correct. I, I, and that's another thing. Like, I don't watch. I, I am. I consume a very minimal amount of media, and I consume it from a very wide range of sources. Mm. So, if there's something that I'm interested in, I'll actually read an article from all of the mainstream news services to see the bias. Because Fox News will report something completely different to CNN. Mm. Um, so I think that's really important to, to do as well. Only consume things you're interested about, but also consume a wide range of content. Um, but basically go follow Life Math Money because he's like, I think he's the alter ego to the mainstream media. So he's saying the things that, that people aren't saying in society and they're the, they're the facts that don't care about your feelings. I read it sometimes and I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, that's a bit harsh, right? Like, that's really you're really pushing the line here. Um but that, that's a very good place to start. Just to start to, I think, one of the things you can think going through the world is um, that everything I see on the TV or in the paper, it's all the same. And if I think different to that, there's something that's wrong with me. Um, it's actually not that. And it's, um, you know, Jordan Peterson, who I referenced before, Joe Rogan, um, Eric Weinstein and Ben Shapiro. Um, what's the other Weinstein brother's name? I, I forget his name. Uh, is it Brett? Brett Weinstein, I think. Um, they're part of something that we call the intellectual deep. Uh, the intellectual dark web, right? And basically it's this alter ego of the mainstream media. So they're guys that are often featured on these mainstream channels, but they often have hugely opposing views to, to what the general media are pushing at the moment. So um, I think that's a really good integration and it just starts to maybe make you think. Like for me, I'd be reading it. I'll read a tweet from Life Math Money, 120 characters, and it will affirm something that I knew deep down but I wasn't ready to manifest into the world yet. And then it allows me to examine that and, and work through it and bring it to a point where I feel comfortable pressure testing it in the real world, um, which is arguably what we're doing here today. And you, yeah. you spoke about the opportunity before. Part of being vulnerable and putting things out there is actually pressure testing your ideas. Mm. So it's it's hearing the best rebuttals and, and then about going back and thinking, actually, maybe I was wrong about that. How can I change my my point or my view because society will tell you if you're right or wrong. You'll mm -hmm. see that the results will be in the evidence. Um, the, the next thing I'm going to recommend um, is it's going to be a little bit more controversial, um, not controversial, but this is going to be the most difficult thing I recommend you do. If you're a young male, go on, you need, you need to give up pornography and you need to give up jerking off. Yeah. Right. I, uh, that's something that I agree with to an extent. Um, I tried, I tried, uh, an elongated period of not masturbating and I agree with you to an extent, like it, it, it basically becomes a form of procrastination. And there's also, I believe biological reasons why if you're masturbating all the time, you, is it to do with reducing your testosterone levels? You can maybe correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, 
I don't know mm. the answer. I reckon that when I, whenever I've gone to read the science, it all seems a little bit yeah, like it's, it's a bit people hard. like oh, your testosterone levels. Like yes, in theory, you would lose a little bit of testosterone, but then like look, I don't really. I wouldn't go online and type in scientific benefits of um, of semen retention, which is the I guess the more um, clinical way of saying it, or uh, <laughs> of um, or, or no fat, which is what the kids call it. Um, I would. I wouldn't go and look at the, like, don't go and type in scientific reasons. All I would say is do it for 14 days and see how you feel. Mm-hmm. Because you'll feel, like, you'll feel like, um, you'll feel like a fucking gladiator. Like, you'll be ready to just go out and take on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and not in this hyper, like, you know, uh, not in this hyper masculine, like, uh, toxic masculinity sense. You just get this really good, strong feeling about yourself. The other thing with pornography, um, and, and here's one of the roots with pornography, uh, I, I think the masturbation thing, there's arguments for and against. Mm. Um, one of the things that Mantak Chia talks about, who's a really he's really big in this men's sexuality space, um, is he said men up to 30 should um, basically ejaculate every four days. Um, and then after 30, every eight days. And then after that, I think it's every month or something like that. Um, but he talks about having a lot of sex. He's like, have as much sex as what as you can, right? But don't just don't ejaculate, right? So it's about control, right? And, and saving that up. So there would be an argument in that maybe saying like, okay, maybe you could jerk off once every four days or something like that. Um, but ideally, you should probably be trying to have sex, right? It would be more beneficial for you because there's a lot of other positive things that happen to our bodies when we engage with another human. True. Um, I'm also not advocating just like, you know, becoming a, um, you know, becoming a one-night stand king, like try and have a relationship with someone that you have a connection with and, and that. Um, but, um, yeah, basically... I don't know what happens in there, but somewhere in there, the the not jerking off really starts to change things and you feel a lot better, a lot more confident about yourself. That being said, I think there is also an overlay with um, with pornography because one of the things we know with porn addiction is we get deeper and darker. So most guys I know, and, and I know a lot of young guys, right? So I've been around, I've been around cricket clubs pretty much my whole life. Um, I work in a male-dominated industry, work in the property industry. Um, pretty much everything I do, I'm surrounded by dudes. I also know a lot of, you know, beautiful and lovely women that have helped me. Um, I practice yoga, which is um, part of femininity, which I'll touch on later. Um, but, you know, I feel like I have a fair idea of how the porn journey works for most young dudes. Mm. They start off with something pretty soft, like normally lesbian, because they're so masculine. They don't want to see another dick. Um, so they're like, I don't want to look at another dick in my porn because that's a bit gay. Um, I'm like, okay, <laughs> you do you. Um, and then pretty quickly they graduate from lesbian porn to normal penetrative sex, right? Because that's what they want. That's what they're fantasizing about. Um, and then from that point, the more you look at porn, the worse it gets. So, Often what you see, I think what you see in men is you see the manifestation of um, uh, the manifestation of uh, like the deepest and darkest fantasies, the things that they would never want to act out in the real world, manifest themselves inside the computer screen, right? Because it's safe, right? It's never going to jump out of the screen and get them. Well, unfortunately, each step you go deeper, you also um, 
like you can't, you guys won't be able to see this listening, but I'm using my hands. Like each step you move towards the right with one thing, you also move towards the right on, on your upper end. So the things you would actually do get progressively darker and darker mm. because you're normalizing the other things through the safety of your screen. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing and that's proven, right? So we know that that happened with men and, and pornography addiction. So one of the really interesting things, um, I haven't consumed pornography for, you know, quite a while now. Um, but well done, bro. one of the things that I'm, thanks man. Um, I'm, I'm obviously researching. It's actually something I'm actually working on is I've got another side project that I'm working on in that space, um, to do with, um, femininity and actually the interplay between the rise of pornography, only fans, cosmetic surgery, um, face tune and, um, female confidence. So that's a project I'm working on doing a lot of research on it, but apparently there's a new trend in pornography, which is to do with step sibling, um, relations. Mm. Now that's basically incest, right? I'm just going to call it what it is. Now, the fact that that's a trend to me is really concerning. Yeah. The other one actually, the other one actually is, I do a lot of research on this as well because, like I told you before, I had a porn addiction and it's something I'm really passionate about liberating men from it because it, it really takes you to a, a really fucked up place. And one of the other ones is gangbangs. So this move yeah. towards women being basically abused and assaulted by a group of men, um, which is fucked up. Yeah, correct. I think it, well, I think that it, it is outside, there is certain minorities in our population of both women and men that would enjoy that. Mm. And yeah, definitely. I'm a libertarian. I don't give a fuck what you do, right? Do whatever you want. It's your body. It's your house, right? But a majority of people don't aspire to that, right? And actually, if they saw themselves on video watching that, they had to watch themselves watching that and seeing what they were doing, they'd be ashamed, right? They would feel like, to use a, a biblical term, they'd feel like they sinned. And sin is just an archery term for miss the mark, Right, So they might be able to justify to themselves that they're watching pornography, but they would be not happy at the depth and the darkness of which they, they had proceeded to. So um, that's that's one thing that I think definitely helps you. Um, after 14 days of not jerking off, you'll feel more masculine, definitely. Your confidence will just skyrocket. Mm. Um, also, I think that deep feeling of shame that we feel when we do watch pornography rather than engage in proper sexual relations dissipates, definitely. Yeah. Um, and the other thing you're building is discipline. Yeah. You're building, it's something that most, think about this, right? If you want to be an exceptional male, right? 99.99% of men on this planet jerk off, right? If you want to be an exceptional male, imagine putting yourself in the 0.1% of guys that is resistant to that, mm. that doesn't need it, that doesn't crave it. I, I think that's power and I, I think that's strength. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there, Jack. Uh, I, I actually have done that a few times, the elongated periods of no uh, masturbation. And obviously, porn is something I avoid uh, now completely because I went through the addiction. So I think that's a really valid point. And the big takeaway that you're putting there is just discipline, man. I think it'll, a lot of men today have got so used to instant gratification and this lack of discipline that they're not able to kind of structure their lives in a way that um, celebrates their masculinity and, and gives them strength. And I think the, the masturbation thing, again, I'm not 100% certain on the, the uh, medical reasons or the psychological or biological reasons why it helps. But I remember reading a book uh, by Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. You've probably read it. Yep. And he talks there about sex transmutation. And I think 
that discipline of controlling yourself is a form of that sex transmutation where you're able to take sexual energy, that testosterone, that masculine energy, and turn it into something great rather than turning it into shame like you talk about, you know, watching porn and feeling bad that you touched yourself or bad that you have these destructive thoughts. Correct. Um, and like I could talk about this for, for years. There's, there's a... Um, we could do another podcast on <laughs> underlying judeo-christian value subset in our society that that might be contributing to men's feelings of shame that we could delve into but i'm cognizant that i need to give you two more points mm. um so the fourth one um the fourth one would be go to the fucking gym yeah um not necessarily the gym right but you need to be working out, right? Because again, instant gratification, right? The gym and, and working out is delayed gratification. I, I took up cycling for the first time the other day because we're in, we're in lockdown. So it's a way to get out of the house here in Melbourne. Um, and the first time I rode the bike, a friend of mine, my training buddy used to be a professional cyclist. Um, I was shit. I was really, really bad. Um, and he was really, really good. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> um, and that was really, but you know what? It's now been two weeks and I'm on the bike every single day and I'm pushing myself to get better, right? And that's discipline and that's challenge. And, and the gratification will come when I'm simply able to just keep up with him, mm. right? Not beat him, right? So there's like 10 more steps of that. The other thing is like, if you go to the gym, um, I'm going to use a Melbourne example. Um, there's, there's some gyms, firstly, any gym's better than, any gym's better than no gym, but like, one of the things that happens to me is when I'm training a lot in the gym um, and say I'm trying to do a PB, right, um, I noticed an environment makes a huge difference. So I train, at, I train at Anytime Fitness, which is just like a 24-hour gym. Um, it works for me because there's a lot of them near me and whatever I'm doing, I know I can always get a session in. Mm-hmm. Um, when I want to do a PB, I go to a gym called Derriman, right, and it's like this 24-hour bodybuilding gym and it's full of people that are like um, just full of roids and like huge, right? Yeah. And they're, it's it's intimidating but also impressive at what these people have been able to achieve. Like that's discipline and that's sacrifice to, to, to get to that level of physique, um, you know, enhanced or not. It's a huge amount of dedication. Um, and when you walk into that place, I can tell you the energy is fucking different. Mm. right so as soon as you walk in the door you hear the music they've got on right you see the people around you there's no option you're pushing a pb that day right you're going there's this little mindset shift that happens inside you when you and you level up and i think having those experiences through like through lifting and through um, you know, team sports and through, you know, getting out there and exercising your body and pushing it to your limits, it actually helps you chase environments that then push you to be better. Yeah. So that flows on, right? Once you get your, it's it's the same thing with cleaning your room, right? You clean your room, you beautify, first you clean your room, then you clean your house, mm-hmm. then you beautify the house. So you hang up some artwork, right? You're doing the same thing with your body. First time you go to the gym, you're just fucking trying to run for the, you're on the treadmill, you're, like, <clears throat> you're fucking dying, right? You get through that right? That's the cleaning of the room. And then you clean the house. So you start lifting a few more weights, right? And then now you're beautifying it. You're building the body, right? And all of these things, when you go out in the world, you now have this confidence, right? That you can, that you can approach anything that you can delay gratification, that you can sacrifice and that you can build and beautify the world around you. And you also start doing that with your friendships and relationships. Mm. So 
you go forward and all of a sudden you'll notice after if you've done the four things that I've already listed, all of a sudden you'll start hanging out with better people right. and people that want better things for you that are pushing you further and harder and, and, and more into your journey in life. Um, and and uh, making sure that you get closer to your purpose. You'll be you'll, you'll essentially um, be expressing you'll, you'll be essentially expressing the positive sides of masculinity. Yep. Yep. Correct. Yep. Okay. Um, and martial arts is another one that you could do. I know jujitsu is really good for it. I haven't trained yet, so I can't speak from experience, and I don't like to, you know, say. But all of my friends that train jujitsu say that's equally as good as going to the gym. So if you'd rather go on and roll on a mat and do uh, and do jits, I would definitely um. I definitely recommend that as well. It's something I'll be trying as soon as they let me out of the house. Cool. Um, the fifth one is um, the self-authoring program um, by it's by Jordan Peterson and, and some other psychologists. Um, it's an online program. It will take you a few days to complete. It costs 20 bucks to buy. Um, and it basically, it's a writing program. There's some extraordinary psychology behind it. And the chances of you succeeding after you do this program are disproportionately higher than if you don't do it. Um, but the whole point of the program is to take your fear, right? And instead of your fear sitting in front of you and stopping you from doing things, it repositions your fear behind you and it uses your fear to push you forward, right? So it turns your fear of failure into a fear of not succeeding. Mm -hmm. So you fear not succeeding more than you fear failing and that's a very powerful tool. That is, that's a complete um, switch in mindset. I will give you just one, just to cap off, because I've sort of given you five hyper-masculine things, right, mm. to embrace masculinity. I do believe in balance. Yeah. Um, Yoga is one of the best things that I've ever started practicing. Um, I, it, it, For me, I'm doing all these masculine things now. When I started practicing yoga, it was good, but I was in a more of a feminine mindset, so I didn't really get the, the full benefit. Now I'm in this masculine mindset, right? And I'm just like, I'm fucking going to the gym. I'm on the bike doing 40Ks. I'm like, I'm closing deals. I, you know, I'm in this alpha male state all the time. And you come back to this place of, of Zen mm. and stillness. Mm. Um, and I always start my practice with meditation because that's something I've, I've, I've done a lot of. Um, so I'll meditate for five, 10 minutes beforehand, um, center my thoughts and then move into this practice. And it's quite... It, it ties you in with a lot of the feminine energy and actually calms you back down because one of the things with, with masculine energy is it's a super powerful force, but you don't want to be Hurricane Sandy in your living room with your partner all the <laughs> yes, time. Yes, exactly. Right? She wants masculinity sometimes, but she also doesn't want you, like when you're closing deals, right, and you're working and you're doing business and you're trying to, you know, be a man, um, that's good, right? You're the hurricane, you're the fire, you're the gladiator, you're the emperor, right? But when you're at home, you need to take off the armor a little bit. So that's something that I use as a transitional practice um, that actually gets me back into a more um, a more mellow state that then allows me to do things like um, reading and learning, um, writing, um, even, um, even some of the podcasting I do, if I know I've got someone coming on that's particularly spiritual, um, I'll get into a softer state so I'm not hitting them with the full um, you know, the full blown, <laughs> I guess, broadside attack. Yeah. So that's something that I would preface. Do those five things, but also make sure that you've got one activity um, that balances that out. Yeah, cool. I like that. I like that. Right. What's I, next? I promise I'll give you a short answer on the next one. <laughs> well, the next one, actually, I, I did have a couple other questions, but I feel like we could do another podcast down the track, bro. I feel like you and I have, uh, I really enjoy our discussions. I enjoy uh, listening to your 
um, train of thought. And I feel like you're someone who, who really goes out of his way to educate himself and be open to discussion. So let's hope we do another one because I'd love to. Uh, but let's just yeah, move I'd love in. to get you on my show, man, and we can uh, and we can do a maybe more of a debate yeah. um, style format or something and, and discuss some of our um, opposing opinions. I, I think yeah. um, let's I, do I it. Think people really enjoy that. Let's do that. Um, but anyway, I'm going to move into what I call the four and one. So I do this at the end of every podcast with every guest. So essentially, it's I ask. No, I've you, done my research. Yeah, sweet. So essentially, I ask you four questions, and then you get to ask me one. Um, any question yep. you want, super open to it. And then once we've done that, I might just get um, a couple of your details. So that if uh, men in particular or anyone wants to reach out and connect with you, ask you a question, they can do so. Uh, but let's get into the four and one. So first question, if you were going to die tomorrow, but you couldn't leave anything behind, right? Nothing at all, except one idea or thought, just one. What would it be? So this is a general thought that you can throw out into the ether of the world, into the global community, but you just get one. Good question. I would say that the one, uh, the one thought. I'm a big, I'm a big believer in intuition and just going with what comes straight up. Um, so the thing that would hit me right, just hit me right between the eyes, is um, be the best version of yourself. Nice. Um, so. Don't compromise on who you are um, and always strive to be better. So who you think you are at 18 is not like who you are. Perfect who you are at 18 and then keep searching for more, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And do the same at 20. Do the same at 22. Do the same. Every single day, you should be looking at your weaknesses and trying to iron them out, right? Once they're ironed out, right, then you can build on top of them. So you get the wrinkles out. You perfect who you are. Um, and, and perfect is a strong word. Obviously, no one's ever perfect, but the idea is that you you should be consistently striving to be the best person you can possibly be, um, and that's you know morally, physically, um, mentally, intellectually, on, on every single level. Um, I guess, and this is a Ryan Sirhan quote, but it's expansion always um, in all ways. Mm. So there's no reason that you should be stagnating. You should just always be expanding, always look for opportunity. I love that um, quote. Expansion it, you know, always and always. I like that. Yeah. So that, that's probably what I would say. Like don't, you know, for me, and I'll give you guys an example, like I've been a little bit lazy um, with, I'm in very good physical shape as far as the things I can do, but I've been carrying a little bit too much body fat for my personal liking some people say to me you know you're fine right i think i'm carrying a little bit too much body fat at the moment right so for me i'm now that's that's the next thing i'm like okay i've done all of this spiritual work i've done all this intellectual work now i need to be going hard on the physical side because how can you be an inspiring leader if you aren't even the best version of yourself but mm. like you can't even get up and go to the gym in the morning who's going to listen to your thoughts on what masculinity is truth truth and i think the the important thing you really touched on there is be the best version of yourself not what you perceive others to want you to be, right? So many people get caught in this trap of, oh, this person wants me to be better or society wants me to do this better. It's like, hold on. What is your definition of the best version of yourself? Like, focus on that shit, man. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a slightly double-edged sword because there's some people that maybe um, there's a little bit of hubris in them and, and they think that they can do things better than society sometimes. Um, so what I would say with that is, um, okay, here's, here's a really, you're probably not going to like this one. Um, <laughs> just be, just be yourself. 
can often be some of the worst advice that you ever get given, right? Because just be yourself. If you're a fucking lazy piece of shit, right? If you are some low level, like just tire kicker, don't be yourself, right? Because you're not helping anyone, right? Please be better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I guess, my my preface on it. Like if you're sitting at home and you're like, you've been smoking weed for the last seven days in a row and you haven't moved from the couch, the only <laughs> the furthest you've gone is to, is to get your Uber Eats, right? Please don't be yourself because you're not helping. Hey, like, you're bro. only making things worse. Bro, for getting, that, getting that Uber um, Eats is exercise, man. That shit's hard. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's, I guess my, my only thing with that. And yeah, the other thing is, um, it's interesting that one of the things that I noticed is I don't think we actually have a lack of self-love. Um, I think we have a lack of self-respect. So I, I believe in the universe principle, you being spelt Y-O-U and everyone on this planet thinks about themselves first. There's people that are disproportionately more selfless than others, but your biology informs your, your, your processes, right? So you think about you and your survival first and you, you do love yourself, right? And everyone thinks, everyone's got an ego, right? Everyone thinks that they're the fucking best, mm. right? It's why when, if you want to go and make friends with new people, right, don't challenge their viewpoints, affirm them, tell them that they're great and they'll love you for it, right? And then over time you can break them down and, you know, psychoanalyze them, do whatever you want to do. <laughs> um, but the, um, the key thing is people actually over-index respect for other people's opinions and then under-index on the respect for their own opinions. So they love themselves more than they love someone else, right? They don't actually say, hey, people rarely look at someone else and say, oh, I want to be that person, right? But then they'll go and fucking listen to their opinion. (laughs) It's like, if you love yourself, just listen to you, right? Now, society is important as well, but... The actual, the funny thing about your intuition is your intuition is actually dialed into society. If you listen to your intuition, your intuition won't draw you too far away from the center. Mm. It's actually sort of biological. Mm. Um, so it's very unlikely that you'll end up a raving lunatic if you just follow your intuition, right? If you deny certain parts of your, of your personality and you overindulge in certain things when, you, when your intuition doesn't draw you there, you'll end up more crazy than if you just follow your intuition. Yeah. Um, and that's linked back to a whole heap of like evolutionary biology stuff and Carl Jung and heaps of stuff that we can run through in a later podcast. But um, yeah, I, I would just say that that part on, on being you is you don't like just why are you over-indexing respect on other people's opinions? Like the first thing I, when someone gives me an opinion of me, I look at them and the first thing I think is who the fuck are you? It's like very <laughs> combative. Like that's how my brain works. But um, that. Like, who are you to be? And then if I think about it, I'm like, okay, this person's really done some shit and like, you know, they're killing it and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, maybe it's time to take it on board. The other thing I work to, um, and I'm fuck, I'm on another tangent. Um, <laughs> it's another, right, thing that, uh, another thing that I work to is the rule of threes, right? If someone tells you something once, it could just be them. If someone tells you something twice, it, you just might have run into the two outliers in society. If you hear that you're a piece of shit for the third time, you're probably a piece of shit, mm. right? You need to address that behavior. Mm. So that's my general rule with like respecting other people's opinions. Yeah, exactly. So the first time someone says to you, oh, you know, you're really this or something, and you're like, okay, you might just be having a bad day, right? Then you meet someone else and you're like, no, that dickhead could also be having a bad day. When you hear it three times, I'm statistically speaking, you're probably being a bit of a dick. <laughs> um, so that's how I would approach that as far as sort of nurturing yourself. 
Yeah, and I think I think oh. all of that ties into your message anyway, bro. If if you were gonna die, just be your best version of yourself. And actually, I I do agree with uh, with not just being yourself because sometimes being yourself is actually not the best version of yourself. So anyway, the next one is one stereotypical feminine quality that you admire. Um. All of them? Is that an answer? Yeah, I suppose that's an answer. Maybe, maybe just rattle off I, the top I, three. Uh, like I, I just, I generally love women. Like this, this societal idea that um, in order to be masculine, that, that you have to identify with, with like femininity. I, like one of the biggest reasons why I've gone down this path is because I think in being more egalitarian and being more feminine, I was a worse. I was a worse supporter of women than what I am now. Mm. Um, like I, the ability I have to empower women today is 10x what I had before when I was playing into this social narrative of um, of trying to be more feminine. Um, what are some of the things that I, I love about women? I love um, I, I love that they are um, inherently caring and like a little bit more selfless. Um, that's something that I think you know very admirable. They're generally more this comes back to the five big personality traits, but, um, you know, th- there's different personality types within women that are different to the personality types within men. And those things are across the board. They're great things. The fact that they can be more caring. I love, um, I think one of the, one of the sexiest things on, on the planet, both according to the science and also according to me, um, is maternal instinct. Like when you see a woman, acting like someone who's going to be good at raising children, I'm like, fuck, like that's really, that that's a really, really good thing. And that's not to say that she doesn't need a career or anything like that. You can do whatever you want. I look, I think that there's women out there that could do both. I think there's also women out there that might struggle with both. Um, just as men, like men are the same. Some men are great at their jobs and shit parents. And some men are great parents and great at their jobs and, and vice versa. Um, so, I don't think that, you know, I think that maternal qualities are, are, are very important and it's not something that we probably celebrate enough within our society because one thing that I've, you know, really catalyzed um, for, I think that parenting is the most important job in the world, career, mm-hmm. because the future, um, I want my children to not have to um, unpack some of the things that I've unpacked and it's really important for me to be a good father. So when I see someone else, um, you know, doing that role, and, and it's just a general admiration, it's not just in women that that I find, you know, sexually attractive. If I'm at a cafe and I see, a, you know, a husband and wife with their child and, and I see, you know, even both sides of the spectrum, bro, if I see a dad being a great dad, I'm like, fuck, that's really cool. Like, that is really admirable that you are sacrificing, you know, your own, um, your own selfish needs and wants for the needs of something else and to help that person be better. That's really cool. Um, so I see that on, on, on both sides. And I think, you know, that maternally is something that I respect. Um, I think generally like, um, I, I just like the, the more chaos. I like the feminine. I like, I like the need to, um, women want to beautify everything. And I think it's great. Mm. Right. So like, um, my apartment is relatively 
I would say relatively minimal and relatively functional, right? Um, I have a few plants and stuff because I like, I like having nature um, inside and I like being near the water and things like that that really work for me. Um, but I, I love how women beautify things and how they, they just generally are out there in the world trying to make the world a more beautiful place. Mm. Um, men are ob- obviously more the order um, and order comes from, you know, like era architecture. There's some great ex- examples, right? No one wants to build like that anymore, right? We want beauty. We want our world to, um, you know, to reflect us and, and the beauty that's inside us. And I think that's something that's inherently feminine. Um, and it's, you know, it's the way that, that women, it's their attention to detail when it comes to hair and makeup and, and all of these things. It's about this, um, you know, this beautification of the world. And I, I think that's really admirable. Awesome. awesome. There's so many other things, so many other things though. Like I, you know, I, th- I think, that, I think that's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So next question, a book you are most excited to read. Yeah. I'm going to hit you with two. Um, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 11 and the Final Solution in Poland by Christopher uh, Browning. Cool. Um, it's a short background on basically um, what happens to uh, basically um, basically normal civilians and how they transition from um, ordinary, moral, good people um, into people that will shoot pregnant, pregnant Jewish women in the ditch. Wow. Um, and it I, and it talks about it's basically shadow integration. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the real the reason I'm looking forward to it is because one of the things I believe we don't do enough in society is we focus so much on the good, but we don't ever we never take the time to look at our propensity to do evil. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm learning is that people are not all that far away from being um, a guard at Auschwitz, like on any given day. You're probably. <laughs> you're probably 10 to 15 awful things happening to you away from being a serial killer. Mm. Um, so, you know, this balance, this mental sanity that we, we think we have, um, I think is a lot more tenuous. And if we don't explore the darkness, um, then we can never really truly embrace the light and really enjoy the light if we don't know what we're capable of. So I like reading historical stories like that. Um, I, for some background, like I, I read uh, Dorsey, which his stories are obviously quite dark, like crime and punishment. Um, I found that brutal to read. That made me physically. The scene in um, the scene in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, uh, where the central character murders an old lady, made me physically sick reading it. It's some of the most powerful literature ever written, mm. um, and that's based in uh, based in communist Russia. Um, then Gulag Archipelago, um, which is the book that basically single-handedly brought down communism um, by Alexander uh, Scholzenitsyn. Um, that's a great, it's like 1,700 pages. It's really long, but that's a great book. Um, and you see what life's like inside a gulag and Jesus Christ, like if you want to really understand how, um, you, you know, if you want to understand the awful things humans can do to other humans um, and then also the path out and the path of redemption. That's a great book. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, this is just an extension of that. So this is then going, obviously, communism is one side of, of the spectrum um, and then going into more of the fascist side and seeing, you know, the, the horrors of, of Nazi Germany. So that's one book. Um, um, the second one is called Christ in Egypt. Um, it's a little bit of a different, I guess, a little bit of a different theme, um, but basically it, it's to do with, the link between Horus um, um, 
and and Jesus and the representation of these archetypical um, archetypical mythological characters um, that have resulted in a lot of the morality and a lot of the social structures we have. So um, that's a little bit different. It's a little bit more in my lane of research at the moment because of the the uh, the biblical lecture series that I'm sort of that I'm preparing. Um, so, yeah, that's basic. That's a little bit more purposeful for me. Um, the other one's more of a more like a life and expansion kind of Yeah, book. cool, cool. I, I love the way your mind thinks, Jack, and I'm going to get these books off you to add to my Amazon wish list for sure. Um, anyway, the last question for you, and then you get one for me. What was the last gift you gave someone? The last gift I gave someone was 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. <laughs> that's a good little link. Nice, and um, actually, while we're on it, um, if anyone listening to this podcast, the first person that DMs me on Instagram um, with a question that they've got about anything we've spoken about today, I'll send you. I'll, I'll send you a copy of Total's Life. Awesome, bro! Thank you for that. That's okay. Just trying to just trying to give back to people that have listened to me rant on for two hours, but um, hopefully they got some value. This is this is. Um, I, I, I get to ask you. You do, you do, and just just quickly, this is what I love about the style of podcasting I do, bros. I, I'm actually really, really fascinated in having conversations like this, and I was super influenced by people like Joe Rogan. You know, where like this podcast will go for two and a half hours, and if people want to listen to a part of it and they get something out of a part of it, great. If people listen to the whole thing and they get a bunch of stuff out of it, great. If they see it at two and a half hours and go, "That's not for me right now," then maybe in the future they will, but. Yeah, like no worries about the ranting and the rabbit holes because that's where all the really important shit comes out, man. Yeah, I, I love long form. Um, my podcast has moved more towards a shorter format mm. at the moment, um, but I will move back to a long form. I'll, I'm basically going to split it off so there'll be a long form discussion um, format as well because I just think you get so much. An hour is not enough to even get into, like you don't even get through the surface layer um we've obviously we've spoken for a couple of hours before this conversation so we're like now we're like four hours in i actually now feel like i'm just restart having a proper conversation with you exactly so um that's the great thing about long form that you can get pretty deep and then you can also set the stage for future conversations 100 100 all right bro hit me up with the question okay so um i know you have a differing opinion to mine on monogamy um so the question i wanted to ask you is um, if you were involved in a relationship that um, that resulted in you um, having a child, um, during raising that child, would you move back towards being in an exclusively monogamous relationship or would you balance um, the child's need for security with two parents with also um, the desire to express, um, express yourself more sexually with multiple partners? Mm, good question. Um, I have actually thought of that. Uh, I guess in my research and in my own sort of inward ref reflection. And I think it would come down to just having completely open and honest communication about how I'm feeling at the time. Because if I'm totally honest with you, Jack, it may be that if I have a child, I'm not even thinking about my own sexual needs. I'm just so focused on raising this kid. And maybe I do go back to just purely monogamy. Or it might be that I realize, okay, like I, I do need to fulfill my sexual needs elsewhere or my partner feels that way, then we would have that discussion. But I think the important note there is to have the open, honest discussion. And for anyone who wants to get into the topic of monogamy versus, you know, other forms of expressing yourself sexually, 
you need to first understand that it's a lot of guys in particular have this weird concept that, oh, you know, if I'm in an open relationship, I get to have sex with all the women and, you know, my partner only gets to have sex with me. That's not how it works. Like, you need to be completely open to the fact that your partner is going to be doing the same shit. Um, but to answer your question, it, it all would depend on on how I'd kind of, what, what my mindset would be like if I have a child. And I can't really tell you what that would be yet. Can I ask you a follow-up question? Yeah, go for it. Does the, does the literature around child rearing um, bear any um, consequence to your decision? Um, when I say the literature, like I refer to, obviously kids that are, um, you know, kids that have a raised by a single parent or there's divorce or things like that typically have worse outcomes. Like, Basically, we know if you've got two parents that are together that love each other and that love the child, the child does really well. If you don't, there's now a lot of other things that can play out. Now, it's not to say that kids don't overcome that stuff all the time, um, but I'm inter- the reason I asked you the, the first question is because I think that one of the things you do really well is you, you nurture and you protect the love in your relationship, but you also have the decoupling of the sexual element. Um, and, and I was sort of more wondering like how that really plays out with uh, you know, with child rearing, because when you get to that point, you sort of need to be, you know, there together and in it all the time. And it sort of, it makes things, I guess, I, I wondered if it was something you put thought to mm-hmm. and if you would actually consider the literature or if you would more um, just do sort of what feels right for you. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, it's another great question. And I think more so the literature suggests that, like you say, it is divorce or not even so much divorce, like really negative um, partnerships where there's constant fighting and there's constant aggression, there's constant anger, and basically the parents hate each other, and that's going to reflect on the kids, right? And same with divorce, when you're pulling away those those parental figures, like you're going to affect the child, like it's, it's going to happen. Um, but for me... I don't consider like your sexual needs to be any part of that whatsoever. And like you said before, like what I have with, with, with my partnership is, is this kind of idea that love is one element and sexual needs is a totally different element. Whether that might change in the future. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm pretty open to, um, changing my ideas depending on my situation. Maybe having a kid will totally change that. Um, but for me, it's 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 a very easy of easy separation of this is love and this is physical needs. Two totally different things. It's it's interesting. Obviously, we you know we share differing like different views on something. But um, I find you know I find your answer very logical and you know very I, I'm I'm cognizant of the of the science and, and biology that um, that backs up your your response as well. But it's always interesting to. Um, I guess it's interesting always when you're speaking with someone that's open to change because I think that's one of the things in, in society that's so hard is everyone's so afraid of change um, that they never truly, you know, get comfortable with, you know, the possibility of their mind being completely different in, in 20 years or something like that. So um, no, that's, that's really cool, man. Awesome. Um, as far as where you can find me online, um, if you want to send me a DM on Instagram, my handle is um is at jack roberts eight um the numeral eight um at the end um 
if anyone knows the person that has at Jack Roberts, I can't find them at the moment, but I will buy their things. So if anyone knows, hook me up. Um, the second thing, uh, I'm pretty responsive on LinkedIn. Um, you can search me on LinkedIn, Jack Roberts. Um, and that's more like I post more business focused content there. Um, you can look up my podcast. Um, we've just moved to video over on YouTube. Just type in, um, just type in video by Jack Roberts. You'll find it there. Um, otherwise, my website is www.jackroberts.com.au, um, and that's got links to all of my um, all of my podcast work, both in audio and in video. Um, if you want to sort of get to know a little bit more about um, some of the people I've had on, that's a really good resource. Um, and then, really, the Instagram is the best place to find out about exactly what I'm doing. That's sort of where I post a lot about all of my um, personal projects. So um, the book I'm working on, um, the podcasts, um, the upcoming vlog series, um, the biblical uh, analysis series, all that stuff sort of lives on the Instagram. Um, and yeah, there's a bit of business stuff tied in there as well. Um, but yeah, otherwise, if you are interested in if you're interested in property and real estate um, and you know, development and things like that, LinkedIn might be a great option for you. Cool. Awesome. And uh, I'll get all that information off you as well, Jack. And for anyone listening, that'll all be linked in the description from the website to the Instagram to the LinkedIn to everything in between. Um, but anyway, bro, I think we're, we're at the end now. So that was a fantastic conversation. And I'm super grateful that you came on the podcast and uh, you're an inspiring individual. And I love that uh, we share some of the same opinions. And I also love that we share some differing ones and that we're able to have this kind of discussion because I think if more men are able to have this kind of open discussion, it's probably going to empower a lot more men to just be 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 better, be a better man. Correct. It's just about having more conversations with more people. Well done to everyone who made it to the end of this podcast in one go. If you took a couple of goes, I don't blame you. There was a lot of incredible information in that long form discussion. Um, so I hope you took some notes and I hope you have some tips and tools that you can apply in your own life or suggest to some of the men in your life who may be struggling with their own identities and their own kind of sense of masculinity. Uh, Jack had some incredibly powerful uh, tips and tools in that podcast. And thank you so much, Jack, if you're listening. That was such a great discussion. And I can't wait to join you on your podcast.